Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Pretty cool stuff today. Trying to corner the market on former UBS bankers as guests. So I have as my guest today, Brad Olson. Brad, welcome in. Thanks for having me, Chuck. I'm excited. All right. I'm going to get you to tell your background and all this, but we got to jump to the to the chase on this. Dude, are you Mr. Skilling? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I, you have to be. A non-lives matter at the Chuck Yates job. Uh, Chuck Yates needs a job podcast so we can like black you out, <laughs> put a smiley face yeah. over, distort your voice. You know, I, my business partners, uh, friends, colleagues, I've been accused of being skilling by dozens of people. And I, I know I'll disappoint some people listening that, I, that it, I'm not skilling. And, you know, <laughs> I get a lot of grief because people just assume that I'm, I'm willing to lie. I'm willing to go to the map for this thing. But, you know, as we'll talk about in a second. Skilling really took off as I was, you know, bootstrapping a, a new company with with my partner. And, uh, you know, my partner heard it from a friend and he came into my office one day and said, dude, if you are waging Twitter war on the entire industry as we are trying to get our cash flow <laughs> above cost, uh, that's not cool. And, and I, <laughs> I, I, I looked at him, I said, you know, Mark, listen. I've got four kids at home. They're they're four kids in a 36 month range. So you know, we could tell you what's causing that. Yeah. By the way, if that'll help. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, just seems like uh, you know the stork visited uh, visited us a handful of times in in a few years. We had twins for our for our third kid, and so I was in my catcher's stance doing bath time every single night, and people were texting me like dude, this 64 team tournament is hilarious. And I'm sitting there making less money than frankly, I ever had starting a new company, getting beat up by four kids and yelled at by my wife. And the idea that I, I had anything left to make a, you know, full-time job out of tweeting seemed crazy, but you know, obviously you're not the first one to accuse me of it. So I'll okay. give you the official answer. Okay. So here's what I did when you agreed, whatever it was five days ago to come on the podcast. <laughs> And I don't think I'm violating the sanctity of the DM because, you know, what happens in DMs stays in DMs, but I'll violate it here. I uh, DM'd Mr. Skilling and said, hey, see you on Thursday. And I got nothing. <laughs> nothing. So anyway, last night I DM'd Mr. Skilling and I said, I said, hey, you didn't respond to this. Okay. I think you're thinking that if I think it's you, you're going to sit there and say, hey, what do you mean Thursday? What are you talking about? But then you figured out that I would think that that was what you were thinking to do it, to cover it up. So you said nothing. I see what you're doing. I got a tweet. I got a DM back this morning that said, no, nah, I just figured you DM the wrong person. By the way, who the hell is your guest this morning? I'm intrigued. <laughs> So you're playing this well. well. You're covering it up. No, thanks. I, I mean, the, the funny thing is I've heard about I've heard about public company board meetings where skilling and my identity, my, my identity as skilling was, ex, was discussed for, for, you know, a significant chunk of the board meeting. And, you know, there are times when I hear these stories, I'm like, you can't, uh, you know, being surrounded by 
again, like a household with four kids running around. My oldest is now in second grade. I, I just joke with people that I, I'm not that funny anymore. I've got too much, <laughs> too much child care. Thou to- who protests this much, <laughs> I'm starting to think this is real. Because if anybody's going to suborn skilling, Maynard Holt, Dan Pickering, and they're not going to tell Tudor about it. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, look, I mean, it, it's... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if whoever the real skilling is uh, shares some of that, you know, Houston energy finance DNA, but um, I'm not into golf and skilling talked about wear patterns. I had to Google what a wear pattern was when I read skilling tweet about a great wear pattern. (laughs) I was, I didn't even know what that was. And so I kind of thought to myself, any, any close friend of mine, and I know we're meeting for the first time, but any close friend who's accused me, I've kind of said like, there's too much talk of golden retrievers and golf on that thread for it to be okay. me. Fair enough. We'll go, we'll go one more thing in EFT though. Who's Kenny Lay? Any ideas? <sighs> you know, I, I honestly, Kenny Lay is one that, um, being a lurker, you know, I, I'm not, I follow, uh, raising the bar, you know, raising the bar is probably the closest, uh, I have to like somebody who, uh, like I'm following almost every tweet that they put out just because, you know, as a public market equity guy, I love somebody who's focused on public equities all the time. Kenny Lay is more about having a good time. And as I, you know, already said, I have four young kids. I'm I'm not into having that much of a good time <laughs> yeah, anymore. I'm giving up fun for 18 <laughs> years. No, I think, uh, I think Kenny Lay is Sankey. Huh. Sankey. Although, you know, it was interesting. I went to a, a party that Sankey threw over July 4th. And he was up on stage talking and I was DMing with Kenny Lay. So I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure it's Lay. You got to have body doubles to be in the Anon game. I guess so. I guess so. No, I'm just kidding, Paul. The, uh, no, the, the last rumor we'll do on that is, you know, there's been bouncing around that Colin McClellan is actually Kenny Lay. And one, I don't know. I don't think Colin would fess up to me. But the one theory I have on why Colin is not Kenny Lay is because Colin's ego is so freaking big. He'd tell everybody. Once you know? it gets cool, I don't know how you could stay in on. And I, I, I'm freaking Kenny Lay. <laughs> I can see that. Once you get over ten thousand followers, you want everyone to know who you are. Exactly. Which is- <laughs> exactly. I aspire to that one day. <laughs> All right. So you grew up in New Jersey. How do we get from New Jersey to Rice University in Houston? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'd always been uh, a, a curious kid, I guess is the best way to put it. Never traveled to the South. Is that like code for geek? I was a geek too. Yeah. I mean, you we know. get, we've got, if you go to Rice, we're nerds. Yeah. I mean, we, nerds. Anybody who ends up at Rice, and I ended up at Rice totally uh, a very nerdy way, but a totally random way. Grew up in New Jersey. My, my parents were both from the Midwest. Uh, they are both from the Midwest. And so Never really got uh, inundated in that, you know, kind of like Wall Street lacrosse player, eight generations of New Jersey and kind of uh, culture that, you know, I, right. I feel like I grew up in. And so I always kind of thought college would be a great free option to go try out a, a part of the country you've never been to before. And so I had never stepped foot in Texas. And I went to, speaking of nerdy, I went to a model Congress where you you go to DC with a bunch of kids from around the country and right. you, you pass a fake bill. So, you know, you talk about cool ways to, you know, meet girls in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I passed a bill this last weekend, no big deal. But, uh, you know, I ended up caucusing. Worked for congressmen for years, <laughs> man. Yeah. So, hey, I left know. before those perks, uh, yeah. you know. 
but but I ended up caucusing with a bunch of guys from Texas and you know was talking to them and was like you know growing up in the northeast it is a, an intensely competitive great school systems you know public schools a lot of competition to go to one of those like Ivy League northeast schools which I always kind of found nauseating like the idea of a bunch of kids going to the same schools as everybody they grew up with you know and, and crying or or not showing up at school for a week because they didn't get into Georgetown or Duke or whatever. And so I thought, you know, maybe applying to school in the South would be just a kind of cool way to zig when everyone else zags. And my issue was I didn't know the name of any schools at, in Texas. So, you know, I basically came home, told my parents in between two a days for football, uh, let's go to Vanderbilt, let's go to Rice. Vanderbilt's dorms were worse and I spent three hours on campus knew nothing about the school applied got in and you know have now been in Houston for 20 years oh that's crazy the um the the rice story I love is George Will decides that his kid needs to get into a good college and supposedly let's be delicate about this may not be up to standards <laughs> to get into an Ivy League school so he writes this wonderful uh, article about rice, and he says, you know, is Harvard the rice of the Northeast? Or, you know, something, <laughs> this quote, and we all use this, rice doesn't let his kid in. Oh. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, come on, you, you know. It anyway. feels like rice is the kind of school that would take something like that and, and you know, use it as an opportunity to, to dunk on George Will as opposed to, you know, <laughs> exactly. letting his kid in. Exactly. But but look, I mean, you know, coming down to Texas, I've always been a big believer throughout my life that the world doesn't need a 20, a 20th or a 30th X, you know, name your thing like the world doesn't need another one of those. And so when I heard that hardly anybody from the Northeast, you know, Rice back then, enrollment was like 25% Houston area, yeah. and 50% Texas. And I thought, Duke is going to get 5000 kind of yuppie kids from New Jersey applying for their freshman class. Rice right. isn't going to get that. And so, you know, I was probably trying to play the George Will game a little bit myself, which is, you know, you're going to stand out I'm as the a quota. I'm the New Jersey quota. <laughs> I'm the, I'm the Rice. two New Jersey acceptances a year. And, you know, now we're filled and we're good. So what college are you in when you get to Rice? Hanson. You're in Hanson. So for the listeners that don't know, Rice has a residential college system and no fraternities on campus because I'm thoroughly convinced Edgar O'Dell Lovett, the first president of Rice, got his ass kicked at a, at a fraternity party or something. So that's been banned. So your college actually kind of functions as a fraternity. It's just you're put there by random. Totally. Well, actually, you know, in, in my case, this is kind of a it's a funny story that we haven't talked about, but when they select you, they hand select you. So while you know, all my friends are going to big schools and basically getting thrown into a 10,000 person freshman class. You know, at Rice, they sort you to a college and then they select your roommate based on a roommate questionnaire that you fill out and a student reviews the, the questionnaire. And so, you know, we had all crammed for SATs, learned all the vocabulary words that, you know, you'll forget a few minutes after you learn them. And there was a question on there that said, if you could, you know, if you could spend time with any historical figure in a romantic or torrid relationship, who would it be and why? 
And so, you know, having done my SATs, one of the things they teach you is or means it means something different than the first word. <laughs> and so I thought, well, romantic or torrid, torrid just must mean the opposite of romantic. And I, I wrote in my roommate questionnaire, I said, you know, I'm a kid from New Jersey, played football, you know, love going to parties, but I'm also a nerd and I'm into school. And if I could have a torrid uh, relationship with anyone, I think like traveling around Europe with Napoleon as he takes over all of Europe <laughs> would be. <laughs> and we've always wondered who purchased Napoleon's testicle <laughs> off of eBay, right? So, so you know, I arrive at Rice and the students who are in charge of sorting, you know, the, the people who organize orientation week are students. Right. And, you know, one of the guys came up to me and said, Hey man, I, I just need to meet you in person. I was like, well, great. <laughs> You're like, you know, I'm thrilled. I'm from New Jersey and like, I'm excited to be here at college. It's like, so you like parties. Like there are a lot of kids here at rice that, that won't party and won't drink a beer by the time they graduate. So it's weird to have somebody say, I'm nerd. I'm a nerd, but I like partying. I played football. But I'd also like to have a relationship, a torrid relationship with Napoleon. And I was like, you know, honestly, I, I just didn't know what it meant. <laughs> and, and he said, well, well, you know, we're actually hedging our bets. And we've got a rice baseball player in the quad with you, uh, in the, the four-man dorm with you. And then we've got, you know, this archy from a, a architecture major from a very sheltered family in Kansas who's, uh, you know, his application kind of jived more with the Napoleon thing. And, uh, you know, so, so I ended up having a great time. I made friends with everybody, but you know, it was, uh, it was just kind of funny because I had the, you know, rice baseball player who's in the process of winning the national championship my freshman year. And then on the other side, you know, I've kind of got the archie who's up all night, you know, studying right. architecture, partying. And so, you know, I always tell people like, you know, not being afraid of, of, kind of making a fool of yourself or admitting that you don't know uh, what something is has probably gotten me a lot of my uh, career so far. And that's how it got my roommates <laughs> at Rice. That's how you got on the podcast. There I you guess. go. There you go. So I will say this about Rice. Um, I mean, you and I have competed at the highest levels in business, right? I mean, you know, doing, doing money stuff uh, throughout our careers and all. I will say this. The amount of intelligence at rice while i was there 3x 5x of what i dealt with in the rest of the world is that would you agree disagree you know it's really interesting i mean not to not to you know ignite emotions about rice on uh, that wasn't my intention coming on the podcast but you know my, my wife who didn't go to rice we we grew up together from first to 12th grade my you know my wife and i went to school we basically took four years off. She went to school in DC. I went to school at Rice, but she would come visit me. And, you know, we ended up getting married after school and, you know, having four kids. But she would always kind of say that weirdly, the high school cohort that we hung with, smart, you know, educated overall, but public high school had more of the kind of intangible things that you encounter more in the business world, whereas the Rice kids were all just astronomically smart. But would have a panic attack when it was a resume drop for the consulting job, yeah, yeah. you know? And, and I, I remember <laughs> smartest guys. One of the smartest guys I know at rice is a postal clerk these days. <laughs> and it just couldn't function in the real world. But God, if you needed a problem solved, he was your guy. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I actually, I studied abroad for a semester in Russia. And when I came back, I got randomly assorted to whoever didn't have a roommate. And so, you know, of course, how good of a, a sales pitch is that? There's one guy who couldn't find anyone to live with him. <laughs> and so, hey, you know, and he was an electrical engineer and, you know, an electrical engineer at Rice is, uh, you know, an interesting guy, no matter what, what walk yeah, of life. That's hardcore geek. And we were going to some, you know, internship job fair. And I was like, hey, you know, I'll walk with you. I'll walk over there. And, you know, I'm wearing my dweeby Joseph Banks box, uh, box shaped suit. And he walks out and he's wearing jeans and a Texas Instruments T-shirt. I was like, well, yeah, I know you're trying to be kind of punk rock, you know, computer science here, but don't wear a T-shirt to the job fair. And he said, dude, I'm going to talk to Texas Instruments. I'm going to have a drop on all these guys who are wearing business <laughs> casual. And I thought like, that is a classic rice that's, that's job such fair. A rice, <laughs> such a rice deal. No, it really, it really, uh, it really was an amazing, uh, amazing place. One last rice thing. And then I want to hear about the first job, but, um, and maybe it actually even ties to the first job. So you were roughly there when uh the fab five was at michigan right yeah yeah no it was uh what year was the fab five at michigan so we were just by the way my kids new favorite line is oh don't worry dad i'll google that for you <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um well i left my phone over there but there but yeah so fab five was like late 90s or early 2000s maybe like just 2000 and so i matriculated like oh two so who was who was the fab five's first game you gonna tell me it's Rice? Rice University. There we go. At the summit okay. at Olstein's Church. <laughs> and uh Rice actually played them tough because that was uh the team that had Adam Peaks on it. Okay. Brent Scott. I forget who else was uh there. I think Chad Michael was probably already gone. But uh anyway, played them tough. 75-71. I think Peaks had a three-pointer to either tie it up or win it and missed it kind of at the end. And then we fouled them and, and they did that more importantly than rice losing to the fab five for their first game. What happened at halftime? Given that you didn't know it, I'm going to go. I'll just, yeah, yeah just, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say, let me speak there. And you're going to say, well, Chuck, that's all you've been doing is speaking. But sometimes I'm so in entranced with what i'm saying it's more like a listening experience but anyway <laughs> no so halftime they give you 35 seconds to, and you take as many shots as you want you got to hit a three-pointer and then you got to go back to where the rockets logo was and it was kind of let's call it halfway between the three-point line and the mid-court line okay 35 seconds you got to hit one of each so the guy in front of, so i get drawn there are two people doing it guy in front of me walks up, cans the three-pointer, and then steps back to that logo and cans it. I mean, two shots, boom, 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 free Southwest ticket. So anyway, then it's my turn. And I fancy myself a decent basketball player. Yeah. So I go out there. The, the basket hangs in the middle of nowhere. You know, when you play in a gym, there's a wall behind it. So oh, you yeah. have some depth perception. And you generally you have a wood backboard, certainly not a clear one. Yeah. I mean, this thing is hanging in the middle of, you know, summit because there are fans everywhere, right? And it's a clear backboard. No depth perception to save my life. I'm sitting there at the three-point line, eight straight air balls. And I'm missing by two feet. 
You know, same like, hoop as the guy who can the two in a oh, row. Oh yeah, yeah, right after that. The whole, you know, and the, you know, the crowd's all rice people that all, you know, know me and stuff. So airball, airball. But on the ninth shot, I can the three pointer. I have two seconds left, and the, you know they got a guy catching the ball for you, throwing it out. So the guy kind of throws the ball out. I grab it, step on that logo, hoist it, canned it. I got my free Southwest. Nice. There we go. We'll uh, we'll make sure we edit that out. <laughs> Maybe we'll save that. <laughs> hey, how was the podcast with Brad? Well, it was great. I told my stories, and I think he was there. But <laughs> yeah, I was there for some of it. Yeah, whatever. All right. So you graduate from Rice. What are you gonna do? So interview, um, you know, interview with uh, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley. And it's funny, right? Because I was a political science, philosophy and Slavic studies major at Rice. So all the job skills. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my my roommate who actually now works for a, a cane portfolio company. So he'll he'll remain nameless. He kind of said, hey, I know you're probably thinking law school, but I just freaked out. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be pre-med anymore. And I interviewed and these investment banking places will give you a shot. If you just kind of say, I'm a smart guy who's just, you know, hasn't found his passion yet or whatever. And so I was like, Oh, that sounds great. Like I'd much rather get paid than, than pay for law school interview at a couple of these investment banks, you know, credit Suisse, clammy, shaky. And like, you know, so who's, who's at credit Suisse at that time? Cause that, you know, the whole, the whole Houston investment banking, you know, it was always the energy office, right? Yeah. When you were, and Credit Suisse would send a team down here and then another bank would steal it. Yeah. And then Credit Suisse would send another team and another bank <laughs> would steal it. Yeah. It's like apocalypse now. They yeah, just, exactly. they just keep just, going up river and going native. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Morgan Stanley needs an office. Boom. Let's take Credit Suisse. Yeah. You know, any, any idea who was there? Do you remember? You know, I, I want to say it was an associate named maybe Mark. Okay. Uh, and you know, so Did long. Did he give you a job? No, no. Oh, screw Mark then. Let's yeah, move yeah, on. yeah. No, let's go. Let's go somewhere better. But it was funny because you know, I think every time I went into an interview, typical Rice guy. You know, I think when you're around super smart people, there's a lot of subtle flexing, and there's a lot of engineers saying like, "Philosophy, good luck." You yeah, know, and you're just right. kind of like. Oh man, the engineer knew what job he was going to get freshman year. And I'm right. here with a philosophy degree, you know, kind of out in the wind. And, you know, ultimately you, you get practiced and you, you kind of ultimately to me, it was Deutsche Bank and UBS and the Deutsche Bank guys seemed kind of fun, kind of freewheeling. And the UBS guys were just total, you know, everyone was grumpy. Nobody had time to listen to your answers in the interview. So of course, when I got both job offers, I went with UBS because they Perfect. must be cool, right? You know, <laughs> they must be cool. These guys, they seem so irritated to have a super day that like they must do do a lot of deals. And, uh, you know, and, and so of course, UBS wasn't even dominant in the league table. I mean, at the time, you know, Steve Trauber, the head of our group and yeah, you know, Steve now runs City. But at the time, I mean, our league tables always showed us as number one. But but we weren't, you know, we weren't Lehman Brothers. We weren't like right. a dominant J.P. Morgan Lehman Brothers franchise. But when I look around, you know, the bullpen I was in, all of those guys. I mean, we were. I I joke with people that 
I know, you know, I don't know enough about basketball to talk in depth about it, but we were kind of like the the fab five maybe except for me but you know the other guys i was with i mean well, it was funny you sent me an email and you called it the fab four of michigan yeah. and i was going only a rice yeah. Geek. <laughs> yeah rice guy totally misquoting sports knowledge but uh but yeah you know it was so a, who's in the bullpen with you so chris transier who was okay. on the podcast um you know uh daniel goodman who who now runs uh carnelian uh was was in the bullpen and you know uh Michael Yur, who now is CEO of Western Gas, and you know, I hope I don't get hate mail from all these guys for mentioning their names, but you know, Jordan Marie. I already, I already texted him and said you were skilling. So yeah. don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan Marie, Gary Reeves. I mean, like just a ton of guys came out of that shop that have all gone on to do um and all guys that I worked with closely. And it was a total grind. And I went from, you know, like, hey, hey guys, um, what's EBITDA, you know, and uh, like, that was my philosophy background. And I saw just eyes roll, like, why do we keep hiring rice people? Like, why do Trauber and Sten make us hire these rice guys who come in and say, like, do I pronounce every letter or is it EBITDA, you know? And then when you hit EBITDA, it just blows your mind, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, what's the X for? Yeah, like there's the rice guys giggling about EBITDA again. Like nobody told them what it actually means. He thinks it's just kind of a funny way to say, it, you know, so Look, UBS was a great... But, but this is a great testament to you because Trauber never hired me. <laughs> I, I interviewed with Trauber every two years for like 10 straight years. Yeah, yeah I never got never got a, a well, job from Trauber. Look, I mean, it was, it was, a, I mean, it was a great learning experience. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, I think the friendships you make with guys at 3 a.m. Uh, you know, I, I joke with folks now that like we were all in our 20s and we were pegging fact set would give out stress balls and we would peg each other with, you know, fact set balls. And, you know, I remember a couple different guys would just ear hole you with these fact set balls <laughs> when right. you'd be, you'd be carrying a bunch of prospectuses, 500 pages off the printer. And one time, you know, I just got ear hold with this fact set stress ball. The, the pages went everywhere. And, you know, I had one of those moments where like I was holding back tears cause you're already underslept. Oh, yeah you're underslept, you're, you're stressed all the time. You're just like telling your girlfriend, like, I think I'll be out by midnight. I think I'll be out by 2am. Oh wait, you're not awake anymore. And, yeah. uh, you know, somebody just like, Oh man, I killed you with that fact set ball. And, you know, we still joke today that like, you know, you're in the last, you're in the last professional setting where like somebody will get balled out by a vice president or an associate. And like, it's like football practice where you're like, dude, I, I think Tim's crying, you know, like, yeah. you know, like there was yeah. a, there was a Canadian guy I worked with who's now, you know, a VP of, uh, at Halliburton. And, you know, I remember I got balled out and I was sitting there in silence and, and he was in the hotel desk across the wall from me and he, you know, he heard the keyboard clicking stop and he's like, Hey man, UBS wouldn't let me meet my movers once. And I just had one of those moments where I was like, I need to see the movers. And my, my MD was like, dude, that's great. This book needs to get done. And he's like, and I just started crying. And he's like, and, and I, he's like, I know you're in a place right now where my advice to you, because you, you're unable to type on the keyboard and you're not making any noise. He's like, just hit the men's room, hit, grab a stall. It's midnight. No one's going to be in there. Get a good cry in, come right back and bang more work. And I, I still joke with people that I'm like, 
you know, it's a good story to tell now, but like there were, you know, legitimate, like tough guys who were like, yeah, I want this job because it's the hardest job and it's, you know, the hardest thing to interview for. And like a year later, they're like, I just get so frustrated sometimes. <laughs> so my my story on that front, because I went to work for Stevens. I went undergrad, detoured through UT Law School, Rice MBA. Um, and after the MBA, I went to work for Stevens. And my boss was Gene Shepard, you know, he's now CEO of Brigham. And, and, uh, anyway, I remember, and I love Gene to death. I mean, just not a better person on this planet, but Gene is the most detailed person, you know, I've ever met. And so trying to do a book for Gene that was okay, was really tough. Right. <laughs> so I had stayed up all night doing this book and Gene had just picked it apart and wanted me to stay the next night and do it. And at three in the morning, I wrote this diatribe because this is this is back almost before email, you know, so oh, there yeah. was no electronic communication. So I wrote Gene this note about I'm not worthy of this job. I can't do it. Blah, 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 blah. Woke in, woke up, the uh, came in the next morning and Gene's like, do we need to talk about this. And I said, no, I hope we don't. She <laughs> just tore it up, threw it away. But that was my cry. Yeah, there we were probably tears all over that letter. And we 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 all have those moments. I you know I got uh, somebody went to a, a London roadshow and said, you know, I want to do a, I want to pitch Sitgo. So pitch a state controlled Venezuelan entity on divesting all their remaining U.S. assets. They don't give any public info. Go dig Google, you know, look for interviews with Sitgo employees, find anything you can and make, you know, basically a hundred page asset book on Sitgo. And the associate had just, you know, the associate above me had just, uh, he was an ex-military guy, <laughs> he had just come out of MBA and he was like, dude, I heard if we play our cards right, like you can make a million bucks in this job. And I was like, <laughs> I was like a week from now, you're going to forget about the, whatever the upside case was. And you're just, and, and so he was like, how do we do a sitgo book? And I was like, look, man, like you're new. I've been doing this for a year. I, I can probably bang out most of this sitgo, but, but I had one of those moments where I sent him an email. I was like, just get out of my way. Let me do the sitgo book. I, we just got handed a, a total, you know, unappealing task. I used some very unpleasant word for the unappealing task by a guy who's going to London and who doesn't give a yeah. crap and, right. uh, you know, wasn't crap obviously, yeah. but you know, and, and I don't believe in hypnotism. I don't believe in out-of-body experiences, but the associate came over to my my desk looking at me like I had just, you know, run naked through through the bullpen. And he was like, dude, I know you're frustrated, but but that email, I was like, you and I are friends. Like, we're working together on it. He's like, I know. I was like, so why would sending you the email be so so bad? He's like, well, because you CC'd the MD. And I was like, no, I wouldn't. I, I no way. <laughs> and he just walks over and it, similar deals. Like, we going to talk about this again? <laughs> no, like, nope, we never will. <laughs> Complete mistake. Uh, frustration has now left my body. I'm good. I will be working on Sitgo, put piecing together Google searches for the next week. And when you come back, and sure enough, you know, he came back like disappointing, undercooked, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I'm glad we're back on good terms that you can dunk <laughs> on my on my book. You know, I dug in, there was a merger that went uh, through one time and it was a private company, but it had public debt, but the the reporting requirements for the public debt wasn't as robust as being public equity sure, yeah. and all this. And I literally spent five straight days building this model, piecing together all this stuff. And I remember 
the only time I ever made Gene laugh, Gene comes into my office. Well, where's this analysis? You know, we're going to go pitch this. And I go, Gene, if I'm doing all this, I guarantee you the public market hasn't done all this to figure out these multiples. They just haven't, Gene, because I'm pretty smart. And Gene, and Gene normally would have yelled at me at that point, but Gene just looked at me and busted out laughing. He's like, all right, fair enough. Slap a four times he on it. Oh, we yeah. We rolled into the to the meeting. So, so you come in, you're doing energy, and then where does that take you? So, you know, I, I think I, I had a moment, um, not a moment, but we were working on a deal, and we were working on a deal with like an old school Burlington XTO management team, you know, guy probably 70, 75, and the bankers were sending over this this IPO deck that the bankers put together with all of your compliance and all of your disclosures. And, uh, you know, the, the chairman CEO of this company would basically send back a, a PowerPoint with none of the corporate formatting, none of the UBS and Lehman logos in the corner. They were just screenshots he had taken of Bloomberg about things he thought were interesting. And uh, <laughs> the, the bankers were like, oh, you can't you can't do this. You know, there has to be you can't just pull a price chart of a stock and say, like, we're kind of like that, you know, <laughs> and, like IPO docs like. You see Exxon, it's up a lot in the last 30 years. I think we're kind of like Exxon, like, like you know, like, and so the MDs basically got to a point on this deal where they were like, we're going to send him, we're going to cram a compliance approved presentation down the chairman's throat. He was born and raised in Odessa and he is going to take none too kindly to that. Brad, you're 23, 24, you know, uh, you're going to be the only banker on the, on the road show. And I looked at them. If it sounds silly to anyone listening, like to send a 24-year-old as the corporate, you know, representative for an investment bank, you, s- you still look young today, too. <laughs> so I'm not sure. <laughs> 24. Yeah, 24-year-old. Yeah, you know, I was still wearing the boxy Joseph Banks, you know, <laughs> right. Mr. Roboto suit. And uh, you know, I go on this roadshow. I've been on enough. It's a bull market. I've been in, on enough IPO roadshows that. I'm calling multiple hedge funds ahead of time, like, be ready, be 10 minutes early. We're going to be there 10 minutes early. There's a transit strike. I've called like eight limos to follow us. And these guys, you know, they're so appreciative. And they're like, so your boss is chickened out, sent you, and you're just on the phone and like, you know, cars are coming and going. We're making every meeting on time. And so they kind of included me in their little little circle. And, uh, you know, the, the company's long since, you know, it, it got sold and, and is no longer a public company. But, you know, the CEO and the chairman kind of were, were in the, the car joking, the limo. And he's like, man, our, it turns out our CFO was just a friend and he didn't know how to do the accounting. So we, we promoted our assistant treasurer to treasurer and then to CFO in one <laughs> week. And, you know, and I just remember I'm sitting there like I'm part of the, the, the gang and you know, we're, uh, we're driving around and I'm thinking, this is great. Of course, the guy who ended up having a private equity kind of like multi nine figure sent a million, like personal windfall was the assistant treasurer who got promoted like <laughs> nice. for the roadshow. But you know, that was kind of one of those things where I remember flying around and one of the, on the company plane and one of, <laughs> one of the executives just goes, Hey, I want to go to the OSU game this weekend. And, uh, the plane just starts going. And I thought to myself, <laughs> as the plane descended, you know, Miller light cans came off every ledge inside this plane because we had run out of cup holders a long time ago. <laughs> and about a hundred empties just banged against the pilot's door. And the pilot's like, everything okay? And uh, 
And I remember as I got back to UBS uh, the following Monday, you know, you could tell that like my bosses were were happy that that the road sh show went well, but there was a little bit like this guy thinks he's pretty cool now. And I got staffed on some horrible project. And one of the hedge funds that we had been talking to in Los Angeles on the IPO uh, road show, I basically sent him an email at like 2 a.m. And I said, you know, I'm getting grinded into into dust and you guys were in shorts in Santa Monica. Could I be your analyst? Uh, you know, I, I know what EBITDA is now. And, uh, you know, these guys in L.A. probably didn't know what to make of it. And they were like, yeah, all we do is energy, MLPs, pipelines, ENPs, you know, whatever. You're from Houston. I'm like, well, I'm actually from New Jersey, but, you know, you're from Houston close enough. Why don't you come out, interview for a day and you can be an analyst? And so that's how I made Who it. Who was that? Can you disclose? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the name of the firm was was Strom Investment Management. and Because Strom came out of Kane, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. So, so like, the bars of Santa Monica are littered with ex-Strom traders who are just, like, there at, like, 1.30 p.m., like, oh, Strom, huh? See how long that lasts. And you're just like, <laughs> hi, I'm the new guy, uh, you know. <laughs> Oops, I was really fired up about that. Yeah, exactly, you know, because, of course, like, the hedge fund world, all of my buddies who have all gone on to do, you know, really cool things, they were all kind of like, hey, you know how we come to work in a tie every day and get berated by other guys in ties? Well, you can get berated slightly less for a few hours less per day if you go to a private equity firm, but you still got to wear the tie. And I remember thinking like, wait, what? Like that, that's the off ramp? And I was like, there are these guys in LA who leave work at 1 p.m. Right, market closes. Yeah. <laughs> market closes, you're stressed, like go to one of those bars uh, in Santa Monica. And so you know, I went out there, I took a very, you know, similar like New Jersey guy going to Texas. Uh, you know, I, I went to a hedge fund in LA, you know, sight unseen. I'd never been to LA before other than those IPO roadshows. Convinced my now wife to get her company to transfer her <laughs> to move us out to LA. You know, uh, as as you'll hear the end of this story, she was she was pretty fed up with me by the end of our LA experience because I, I you know, I jerked her out to the West Coast. Um, but it was cool. Uh, the reality was, you know, it was a $200 million hedge fund. Strom had, you know, spun out a cane. He's, you know, classic kind of, uh, uh, iconoclastic, you know, just misanthropic guy who just was kind of like, look, I, I gave Kane everything, everything, every investment idea that they have that's worth anything was on my desk in pencil in 1989 or whenever I walked out of there. And, uh, he kind of rode the the nascent hedge fund boom in the 90s. That's not what I left on my desk when I yeah. walked out of there. But <laughs> yeah. the better part of discretion keeps me from saying such things. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, and, and so, you know, Strom was this very, I mean, he was an interesting guy because his kind of claim to fame, or, or at least one of his claims to fame, he had created like a multi-strat, uh, like a pod shop. He had created like a mini Citadel with the money that he managed. He would say, hey, it's 1995. You think you know how the world works. Here's 10 million bucks. Whip it around. You double it, I'll give you another 10. You lose 10% of it, I'll take 9 million bucks back. And he created like a multi-strat hedge fund. One of the strategies was kind of energy and midstream MLPs, you name it. And he kind of started digging in in the early 2000s. And he found, you know, what is now... <laughs> I mean, Mr. Skilling obviously has made a career out of writing about the incentive structures of midstream companies. And he basically did the math and was like, 
So your management fee goes up every time you issue more shares. Like that can't be right. And if the deal's accretive, you get an exponential growth of the common share accretion. Like no way. And no, we put a great title on it. It's called incentive <laughs> distribution rights. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, when and somebody I, figured that out and it's like, no, let's just call them IDRs. <laughs> <laughs> So, so by the end of the MLP boom, you know, when I was on that road show, there was a, there was a something, I forget what the exact name was, but it was like management incentive rights, like MIRs. And I remember, uh, you know, this is a little bit of a discursion, but, but on that road show at UBS, we're in a deep dish pizzeria right near Midway airport. And, uh, you know, we're, we're one of the Lehman brothers bankers who's like tagged along is like, um, is there, is there a Chardonnay, you know, on the menu and, uh, you know, <laughs> They're the the management team is like pitchers of Miller Lite, like we're about to print a three hundred million dollar IPO, you know, and like we're annoying everybody at tables around us. And one of the management guys I, I remember stood up and he said, you know, I don't know why they call them MIRs. They should call them like they should call them MIBs for money in the bank. And uh, you know, standing in like a South Side working class like deep dish pizzeria wearing suits waiting for them to gas up, you know, the company plane and just like, you know, sloshing these Miller Lite pitchers. I remember thinking like this is definitely the peak of my investment banking experience. Why do they hate us? Yeah. <laughs> I can't figure it out. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it was an exciting time in a bull market, but but we can, you know, we'll talk about it in a minute. Like bull markets, bear markets have their own behavioral attributes. The same way that today it's a bear market. Everything we do is wrong. You know, nobody will invest in our sector. Like that's as natural of a part of the kind of bear market grieving process as the clanking the Miller light pitchers together is in the bull market. Right. right. And, and there's nothing you can really do to, to change that. But, you know, so anyway, back to Los Angeles, the reason that out of all the strategies, um, the fund decided to stick with midstream, there was a private buyout, um, of planes, all American out of planes, uh, Plains Exploration or Plains Resources. Plains Resources. I knew Corporation. Plains Resources Corporation. Right. And, you know, Strom, who, who Hold was- Hold on one second. You keep talking. I'm over here reading my separation agreement from Kane <laughs> and the disparagement clauses just to make sure and the, the confidentiality clauses to see what I can say during this conversation. Uh, yeah. So if I just nod at you sometimes, just keep rolling. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the reason that that midstream, obviously at the time you had Matthew Simmons talking about the world's running out of energy. We're trillion, in the desert. We're trillions of dollars underinvested, which is again classic bull market behavior. You know, no amount of investment is enough. The same way that with renewables today, a thousand percent growth year over year, not enough. You know, and, and it was a very similar mentality in 07, 08 with the the discussion around investment. And so here was Plains, a, an infrastructure business, effectively getting bought out in a private deal by a private consortium, including management. So uh, at the time, you know, this is before I, I arrived at Strom and I heard all this story post, but, you know, Strom basically called up Luca Lucadia, you know, the financial conglomerate that now owns Jefferies and other businesses and said, hey, like, if I'm right, this business is going to get bought out and it's going to do a acquisition that is going to effectively double the management fee. So they're they're going to buy it out for 10x cash flow. It's going to be a 5x deal within the year. And if the deal is accretive, it's going to end up being a three times cash flow deal. 
Um, oh, by the way, if it's public, it trades at 15, but keep going. Exa yeah. Exactly. So clearly uh, what, what we would call, you know, hypothetically speaking, yeah, you know, <laughs> asymmetric situation. And so his kind of, you know, my old boss kind of said, Hey, I'm coming with Lucadia. I want, you know, I want what every in insider management buyout hates the most. I want all the books open. I want your, your bid to compete with my Lucadia cash bid. And I, you know, I want us to f duke it out in, in the daylight. And of course the, you know, man management and Vulcan group kind of said, would you like to participate uh, personally for 4% of, of our buy? <laughs> you know, I, I don't obviously know that that's how it all went down, but long story short, you know, Strom ends up owning 4% of this GP personally. The, the, the deal that I described taking into a three times multiple is, is a tip of the iceberg over the next five years, you know, cash flow to the GP you know, increases tenfold, twentyfold, and the multiples get bigger over that period of time. So when I arrive in late 2007, he had split the ownership and basically put some of the private ownership in our fund. And he said, hey, 10% of our fund is, is private and we market at a, you know, valuation mark to model. And every quarter, it, it is so far below market that we can basically market up in anticipation of this IPO the IPO should go down in 2008, uh, famous last words, right? And, uh, you know, nothing bad will happen in 2008. Valuations will be great. And we'll, <laughs> we'll finally liquidate this 4% position, which should be worth, you know, nine figures, maybe multiple. And so I was there in 2008 as, you know, what's the IPO update? What's the IPO update? And, you know, we all know whatever you learned in business, you, you originally learned in, in high school, in the high school cafeteria when, right. like, Megan's not passing notes back, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like what's the update Lehman, what's the update on the IPO? Um, obviously financial conditions today are unprecedented. Like the market's still trading pretty well for energy assets. What's the story. And we're out there, you know, in LA living, you know, holding 4% feeling very minority powerless, whatever. And, uh, you know, at some point, Hey, great news. The mark, that we are getting from Occidental buying out a stake of the GP makes your 4% look like a lot. And, you know, of course, my boss was like, don't care, where's my cash? And the, the response was, well, you should be really happy because with Lehman Brothers, you know, the, the bank or the book runner on the IPO potentially not existing in a month, we're still able to get you a mark that shows it's worth 15 times current cash flow. And my boss, he was an extremely technical trader. I mean, he, he was a, I don't like, uh, you know, something opens in the morning with a gap down, he'd be out of it by 10 a.m. You know, he, yeah. was, he would be long something for months, for years, if he didn't like the way it was trading. And that was very much Rick Kane. I mean, Rick Kane started off life as a bond arbitrage guy at Cantor Fitzgerald. So Rick very much a trader type. So not surprised they were drawn together. Yeah, I mean, my interview, you know, this is a, probably a very atypical interview, but, you know, Mark Strom spent five minutes with me and he said, how much is an iPod, which was the cool thing at the time. And, you know, I was like, I don't, you know, 300 for the small one, 400 for the extra carrying capacity. And he said, hey, I'd like you, I'd like to sell you my iPod for 200 bucks as is no returns. And I, I was like, you know, figuring this is a thought experiment, like, right. No, that's all right. I'll pay 300 at, at the Apple store. And he's like, you're hired. Because anybody who realizes that some, once the bloom is off the rose and people are trading hands for less and less, 
you can't go back to charging three to 400 bucks for, for an, like people will not pay for an inferior good. And the market shows you when a good is inferior by gapping down. I still am this, I'm still new to the EBITDA concept. So right. he's explaining this and I'm like, so I got the job, you know, like <laughs> I can do Excel spreadsheets. And he was like, I don't care about any of that stuff. Learn what a double top is. And, you know, so I, as I got through the kind of insanity of a technical trader who you've got to remember the world's going into meltdown and energy prices are going like this. Yeah. And a technical trader loves that kind of strength in, in uncertain times. And so he is basically yelling in one ear, do you have the planes IPO model? You know, do you have the planes monetization IPO model ready to go? And in the other ear, he's like, Chesapeake is Saudi Arabia, but it's privately, you know, it's available to buy for anybody. This is the chance of a lifetime. We're basically buying into Aramco before they found Gowar. And I'm thinking like, whoa, this is getting, you know, very trend theme, you know, no EBITDA multiples, just this is this is worth a lot more than it currently trades at. And I'm doing my model, trying to catch up with all of his Chesapeake buying. And, you know, the morning they do the Haynesville JV, the stock gaps down on what is every, you know, financial note says best deal ever. Chesapeake is now worth triple what we thought it was. Right. And Strom's, you know, we're totally liquidated out of everything. And I want to get out of this Plains IPO even more now because even a great Haynesville announcement, the market doesn't like it. And the market doesn't like energy anymore. And I was like, it's still the best performing asset class. You've got to be crazy. But I'm 24. I'm still learning. And so, you know, he's desperate now to sell out of, of planes. And he calls, you know, the bankers calls, you know, planes management. And he says, you know, this oxy deal will not stand. I, it was a Houston management buyout that wanted to steal the company when I first got in. And now it's a Houston crew of, you know, different investment firms like you know, NCAP and Kane were getting liquidity on the Oxy buy-in. Right. And, you know, he's like, and of course, like Plains' lawyers were kind of like, uh, Mr. Strom, you don't have any tag along rights in this transaction. You know, you you officially cannot petition for to have your, you know, this is a private deal. You're not involved. And he's like, well, you know, in a classic kind of LA guy move, like when I'm running into the courtroom, waving a bunch of papers in the air, like, we'll yeah. see if you guys still like it then, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh <laughs> And so, uh, okay, uh, we'll be in touch, you know, and everybody on the plane side was so mad. And, uh, you know, again, Mark is Mark Strom, my partner, my boss, he was the kind of guy that, you know, when things were trending up, he wanted to own more. And when things were trending down, he wanted to be out. And so, uh, you know, about a week later, we get a, a very nice call from planes management. It's like, guys, we heard your concerns and we have moved heaven and earth to get Occidental to expand their, their purchase. And they will include your 4% stake in the Occidental GP buy-in. And, you know, Strom, my boss, kind of sat there with a kind of calm quiet that I'm not capable of, but he, he would just sit for 30 seconds on a phone call and just let other people fidget. And uh, he said, well, I guess Oxy really likes what they have in this Plains GP. Must be really valuable. And everyone's kind of just dead silent. And he says, yeah, I'm cool. I'm actually going to hold on to the 4%. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, you could have, you could have hung up the phone and heard the screams uh, and the, the epithets from Houston. I mean, and, and sure enough, right. It ends up IPOing a few years later at an even better valuation, but 
you know, I remember just like the, you couldn't even tell whose voice it was, but no good deed goes unpunished with you, LA, you know, like, and the rest is, you know, unprintable. But it was, it was one of those moments of, for a guy who had come up as an investment banker, junior investment banker. And when a CEO is talking, you never talk. Oh yeah. And, and you're sitting there, my, my boss is wearing, you know, Lululemon or Nike dry fit coming back from a hot yoga and just saying, <laughs> oh, I'm good. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing that, with some age and some experience that I now really, really appreciate is being that young guy, being in the room, getting to see those CEOs. Cause this is a related story um, to the time. Cause when, when you, you had planes resources, it owned the GP of planes, all American. And actually what was going on is research coverage on planes resources would sit there and say, okay, the value of the units it owns in Plains All-American is X. And the oil and gas reserves are Y. And then it would subtract the total consolidated debt on Plains Resources balance sheet. And we would sit there at Kane and go, but the value of the MLP units already subtracts the debt yeah. of the MLP. You're subtracting it twice. And I mean, this was like, Goldman Sachs research analysts and stuff. It was not, you know, Jim Bob's, you know, bucket shop investment bank. I mean, sophisticated research guys couldn't get the concept that they were double counting. So that was the the stated purpose on on splitting it. So when we when we split it and Kane and Incap kind of bought the with management uh, and you guys bought the GP interest, we we in effect spun. So Plains Resources for a while owned just the GP interest, but we spun the oil and gas assets out into Plains Exploration, and Jim Flores came in and ran that. Okay. And so Jim Flores was CEO of Plains Exploration and Plains Resources, but we'd split it all out. So this is my story of being the young guy <laughs> in the meeting. This is why to this day, I love Jim Flores. Jim Flores calls me up and asks for anything except maybe my kids. And on certain <laughs> days, he might get my kids. If Jim Flores asked me a favor, the answer is yes. Because I am I'm the young guy. I've been at Kane, call it a year. I mean, I'm a managing director, but I'm still 32. And the board of planes is NCAP. So, you know, I think Zorich is in that meeting. Marty Phillips might be in that meeting. Peterson might be in that meeting. And then it's Kane Anderson. So my boss, Bob Sanat, sitting there. And then you've got you know John Raymond, who was at that time Flores' kind of right-hand guy and and all. And then the board of Plains All-American was like an all-star list of old white guys in oil and gas, <laughs> right? So we're sitting in this board meeting, and Flores is circling the conference room table. And what the deal was, was Plains Resources was going to potentially buy another GP interest of another MLP. Gotcha. It was actually natural gas. Might have been Borders something. Anyway, oh, maybe Boardwalk. It wasn't Boardwalk, I don't think. Well, Northern Borders. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, and so that was on the table, and I free, I think it was splitting from Enron or something, whatever yeah. the case was. And so Plains was looking at buying it, and Flores is walking around the table saying, guys, we should buy it. We've got the Premier Oil platform. Let's have a natural gas platform. It'll be perfect. And he goes, you got any questions? And I raised my hand. He goes, yeah, Chuck, what do you think? And 
as I started saying my question, I realized mid-sentence, it was the single stupidest <laughs> question that's ever been asked in the history of business. So I utter out this ridiculous question, and right at the end of it, right at the end, Flores goes, Chuck, stop. And I'm just like, my heart sinks. I'm going to get fired from Kane. I realized how stupid it was. He goes, Chuck, I know exactly where you're going. You ask that question. It's going to lead to this question. It's going to lead to this question. And you're right. That question is the whole guts of that. You got there after a 20-minute uh, uh, deal. It took me three weeks. Here's ultimately how I got comfortable with that that question, Chuck, and here's why I'm good with the deal, blah, 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 blah. And everybody on the board's like, yeah, good question, Chuck. Flores looks at me and he just winks. And I was like, whatever you need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you need. Yeah. So, no, I mean, that's huge. But the reality is, I, you know, I kind of joke that there, you know, there are benefits of the being the philosophy poli sci guy in those meetings has definitely led me to ask more than my fair share of dumb questions. But you made a great point. I mean, I ended up at TPH doing research because when I was on the buy side, I would call guys because I was genuinely like, hey, I'm a philosophy major. I just learned what EBITDA was. And, right. you know, like, so, so how did you get to this? Like, what, why is your terminal multiple? Because uh, this is like a seven times terminal multiple business. Yeah, yeah, I know. But there must be some like mathematical derivation of that. Like, you're right. not just throwing, you're saying you can't throw a seven times multiple on this year. But something magical happens in five years. You can definitely use a seven times multiple then. And guys were like, dude, are you trying to be a wise guy? You know, yeah. <laughs> you're like, no, I, I'm genuinely curious. And, you know, when I ultimately took the research role, it was because how many notes have you said, wait, did they double subtract the debt at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo? Like, I, I must be the dumb guy who just doesn't understand why you would double subtract it. And so when I went to TPH, it was like a write those questions that bothered you when you were the guy who had to be quiet in a meeting. And I was like, I'm going to start just asking those questions. And the thing that was incredible was at TPH, the number of clients and folks who, you know, not everyone's an energy expert. I, you know, spend all my time in energy, but I still struggle with the concept of who's truly an expert. But, you know, I remember kind of sitting there at TPH and saying, yeah, so why would this be valued this way? And People would just write back saying, makes no sense. Makes no sense to me. Like, yeah. have you gotten a good answer? And I'm like, I'm sending this thing out to 12,000 people. The only answers are, are, I'm getting are like, good question, man. <laughs> good question. <laughs> <laughs> so so your, your experience, I mean, I think is, is pretty universal in that, you know, I look around at the table. I'm like, hey, if you have the commanding body language to know little or nothing and never ask a curious question, and you can cruise through a career without having to be the dumb, curious guy. I have all the respect in the world for that guy. But I think, you know, you come out of rice and you're kind of the, there's no way I can just bluff my way through the next three decades of energy finance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, that's exactly right. And there were, I, I remember having the moment where the emperor had no clothes. You know, I just remember sitting in there asking a very, very well-regarded CEO some basic questions, kind of pulling the thread and just realizing, holy cow. Yeah. Doesn't get it, you know? Well, I mean, look, you know, I made a joke about that deep dish pizza joint with the management team, but there was a great meeting shortly before that where a hedge fund guy came in and said like, 
you know, you, your, your peers are all using three-way swaps or three-way collars and, and swaps. And you guys are out here, you know, with much lower hedge percentages. And it was, it was the time of Lynn and, and Brightburn and, and all these other, you know, E&P MLPs. And I remember, you know, this guy, Odessa born and raised and, you know, 70 or 75 already very comfortable financially. He just looked at the guy and said like, if somebody comes in here and puts enough lipstick on a pig that you want to marry that pig, then definitely buy that IPO. But I'm not going to throw a bunch of three-way collars on this business and tell you it's not an oil and gas business. And I remember sitting there as the young guy, like, I think the hedge fund guy got owned, but I'm not sure because yeah. everyone's so quiet, <laughs> you know, but, but I just remember having those conversations where when you dig in from a position of curiosity, you very quickly find out who's real. And I think, you know, in any bull market, we, we know it right now it's happening. I'm not like a, a big anti-green or anti-renewables guy at all. But the type of people that are growing businesses rapidly in the renewable and clean tech space are very reminiscent of the guys that, you know, I, I certainly spend time around and I'm sure you spend a lot of time around where it's kind of like, here's what you need to say for the IPO to be oversubscribed. Yeah. It's like, what does that have to do with your business? Like, here's what you have to say. Here's the tax shield. We don't expect the MLP to pay any taxes for at least five years, you know, like we plan to grow the dividend 10%. Like what about uh, a depleting like PDP business is the 10% dividend growth come from, you know, it's like, they want to hear a growth rate. We're going to give them a growth rate and we call it the annual non-recurring work. <laughs> you know? yeah. No, yeah. No, you know, it was interesting. So I stop at the coffee shop every morning in Richmond, Texas, and the police are always in there. So I chat with the police. I figure that might hold me in good stead one day, but, um, Anyway, we were talking about bubbles, and it's interesting. I've actually read a lot of the academic research on bubbles, and literally none of the, the academics, the experts that have studied it, have been able to figure out the characteristic other than it goes up and you buy because you think it's going to go up, and then people sell because they think it's going to go down. Yeah. You know, because if we could actually fit, because I agree with you. I mean, I think renewables etc. Let's just call it broadly transition. I mean, I think that's going to be a huge bubble. We're probably going to spend five to 10 X what we spent in the shale revolution doing it. And at the end of the day, I don't think anybody's going to make any money at it. And we're going to be lucky if we don't lose half our money. Well, I, you know, look, the, the reality of how financial markets work, and this has been a, a painful, you know, a painful firsthand lesson for everybody in energy over the last few years. And we're finally emerging from that into a better situation. But if there is only a billion dollars of wells to be drilled and there's 500 million dollars of capital available or there's five billion dollars of capital available asset markets will act very differently the reality is the world you know the the physical economy still needs x dollars of investment sometimes there will be 5x what you need available and sometimes like right. today there will be 50 percent of what you need available right. and you know one of the things that uh, without getting into too much of the, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the, the boring work stuff, but we spend so much time studying the, you know, charger, like charging stations are low single digit return on asset businesses because every, you've got a hundred different guys going out to HEB and saying, 
how sweet do I need to make economics for you, H-E-B, for us to put a bunch of these in your parking lot? Right. And that's not a great economic opportunity set, but there are tens of billions of dollars chasing that, whether or not it's a good inherent economic opportunity. And then, you know, whether it's mining, whether it's oil and gas, we're seeing these businesses reinvest on average, you know, 30 to 50% uh, of operating cash flow because they have been beaten into submission on you guys always overspend. So they now have to demonstrate that they are legit by underinvesting and that capital that they used to be able to access isn't there anymore. The guy who did a deal in Boston is is gone five years later, you know, and and a lot of the private equity capital isn't as easily accessible. So, you know, I think the reality is it's not about people say, oh, you know, green, green stuff is is fake. It's a bubble. It's, you know, whatever. I just rather than kind of use words that get people emotional, I view it as you have an opportunity set that will consume X billions of dollars. If the capital markets are throwing 5X that amount of capital, you're going to have trouble generating returns. Like no pipeline ever went bankrupt during that huge pipeline boom, yet all the pipeline companies went down 60%. Like, why is that? Well, because there was, you know, $20 billion a year of pipeline opportunities and there was probably $60 billion a year of mutual funds, hedge funds, you name it, flowing into that space during the peak of the the shale boom. So let's break this down because this is, I'm formulating this in my head kind of to talk about at some point on a podcast and I'll probably talk intelligently then and I won't talk intelligently now, but- <laughs> What I find interesting is we sit there and we talk about underinvestment and we're all so damn arrogant that we talk about U.S. underinvestment and all. I don't think that matters anymore because I think what happened in the shale revolution, we told ourselves we were the low cost producer and that we were actually generating the marginal barrel for the, for the world. And I said that with a straight face fundraising. I truly believed it. You know, the George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> no, I really believed it and all. But I think we figured out that for the most part, we're really not the low-cost producer. It's still Saudi. So shouldn't the mindset on what prices of oil are going to be less about our underinvestment and really more about do the Saudis really have three or four million barrels sitting on the sideline? Or am I thinking about it wrong? You know, the way we kind of frame it uh, when we talk about it is any resilient system, uh, let's use like Texas power because we all, well, I lost power in February. You may have had some, but you know, in in Houston. I've not heard my story on this. So (laughs) just real quick. So all my listeners have heard this a hundred times. So go get your beer or whatever you do during (laughs) the podcast. Uh, But uh, so anyway, my dad goes out and puts solar panels on the vacant lot next to his house and the Tesla batteries on the wall, right? And I'm like, Dad, how much did that cost? And he's like, ah, $125,000. And I go, what's kind of the payback on that? Dad's like, well, I calculated it out. It's 12.3 years. And I'm like, Dad, you're 80. I mean, I hope you're here to see payback, but what are we thinking? And so anyway, he, you know, he sends me his, uh, his selling back to the grid you know, kind of every month and, and all. So ERCOT blows up, all that good stuff. I am down in Richmond. I'm in equal distance, fire, hospital, police. I don't think I'm ever going out on the grid. Of course it goes out. 
Yeah. So I'm freezing in my house. And my house is this old wooden house. You know, wind is just howling <laughs> through my house. So I load my cat up in my in the carrier. I grab a bag of clothes and I go over to my parents' house. I walk in. Dad looks at me. 12.3 year payback don't sound so bad right about now, does it? Anyway, yeah, I mean, yeah. but no, I mean, look, like the reality is every resilient system that is not prone to failures and price spikes and price collapses has to have a marginal. I find it easier to think about, you know, this marginal concept and how we talk about it in our meetings. The marginal concept is easiest to understand in, on the power grid. You don't like it's easy for a New York Times reporter to come uh, come to Oklahoma or Texas and say, you know, old Bessie is the dirtiest coal plant still in service. And old Bessie is is an eyesore and it, you know, pollutes the, the air. But the reality is old Bessie runs like two days every year on average because she is the thing that makes sure the grid doesn't completely go out. And one of the challenges with divestment that that's being created across the whole energy space is the fact that a, a plant that's on for two days a year is very hard to model out and say, old Bessie will definitely pay you back 100% of capital next year. It's a, hey, let's keep it around for the next 10 years. And one, one time, uh, you know, weather's going to, temperatures are going to go negative and we're going to make 10 years of our capital back. But because companies are being forced to rationalize, always sell non-core assets, you know, your valuation's getting hammered, all of these marginal assets, whether it's, you know, Bakken oil production or whether it's coal plants in Oklahoma and Texas, they're all getting decommissioned at an accelerated pace, right? Because we're going through this kind of divestment period where the available capital is getting smaller, available capital gets smaller, the right answer as a company trying to survive or thrive is to divest your non-core assets. And I think when you look at, you know, the oil market, the real problem was that Saudi, Saudi is your big nuke plant, right? Saudi should run 100% of its capacity all the time. Right. You should not be telling a guy like, hey, pull out the uranium rods. You know, somebody right. just turned off their lights. You know, you, you want to have the nuke running all the time. And then it's your kind of, you know, janky coal plant, which is kind of the, you know, scoop stack, DJ, Bakken, Eagleford, like, hey, prices are 80 or 90. I need you guys to ramp production in the next six months. I think the real challenge that, you know, the oil market has experienced is that the debt loads of a lot of marginal oil producers in the U.S. reflected being a nuclear plant. When you're a nuclear plant, you run all the time, you can have debt. Because you don't have to worry about getting shut down. Right. The Bakken is kind of like, you know, parts of the Bakken, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm exposing my ignorance to a lot of the, the technical, you know, experts that listen. But, you know, look, the Bakken should not be levered up 60% debt to cap because it might not be needed in the, in the, you know, dispatch stack for a year or two. And you should have a business that's able to go into base decline without a catastrophe, right? And I think... Like CDEV's the perfect example of went into the downturn with the lowest debt load, tried to go into a mild decline, and quickly became two times levered. And then once you're two times levered, it's, hey, man, you can never decline again, because if you decline anymore, you'll be three times levered. And then if commodity prices go down, you'll be four times levered, you'll be headed towards, you know, BK watch. And so I think that's like the, the big concept that, that we talk to our clients a lot about is like, rather than thinking of like, 
Saudi good, America, you know, bad, or, or you know, Saudi's reliable and America's kind of like the janky. J- just understand that an, an industry that is only needed in case of emergency, which really marginal shale is an in case of emergency asset. Like you could argue right now, the Haynesville, uh, if we had better, L- you know, bigger LNG export facilities, like Haynesville is a perfect just in case asset when Europe is freezing and Europe is having to shut down fertilizer plants and shut down factories because they can't get gas. You know, Haynesville can add a B in within the year. And so whenever weather, you know, whenever the, the inventory level starts to look nasty, there should be the ability for a shale company or a shale basin to ramp up. And I think the problem is with this idea that shale can always get cheaper, always get more efficient, like, oh, put debt on this business, you know, like put a lot of debt on your tech business because you're always, you know, you're always lowering your break even. You're always, you know, kind of getting more competitive. And I think with shale, it was, no, you're not an always getting better asset. You're actually just a high cost asset that shouldn't run with that much debt. You know, I said, I, so the last podcast I did was I actually gave a speech to the Lafayette Geological Society. One, didn't know they had a geological <laughs> society, but lo and behold, they did. And uh, two, they actually had it at the Petroleum Club in Lafayette, Louisiana. Didn't know they had one of those either. But um, anyway, one of the things I said that I don't think I appreciated until March of 2020. So, I mean, literally the week before the price fight between the Russians and the, the Saudis is I was up there. Kiddo was at Model UN. So I just told everybody at Kane, hey. I'm available to talk on the phone, but I really want to spend all day going and talking to public folks just to hear, hey, I'm private equity, you're public doing energy, let's compare notes. And one of the things I picked up on, because we all know that you know capital's been withdrawn because we've sucked, right? We've generated a lot of red. There's the green problem and and that. But I don't think I appreciated, and it it you just laid out for me this whole point is a lot of capital went away because people truly think oil is going to be $60 a barrel or less for the rest of our lives. So that optionality of that price spike, old Bet- Bessie, as you say, running two days a-, a year and you making a gazillion dollars because ERCOT's a mess. You know, US or oil prices, that spike that historically always happened because of bad stuff, right? Yeah. The war, you know. Saudis go on strike, you know, do an oil strike, whatever the case may be. They truly don't believe that's ever going to happen again. And if you, I think if you pull a lot of Houstonian energy people, we all think it's going to 100 and 125 for all the reasons you say we've underinvested and the like. I don't think the rest of the world thinks that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, five years out, we're at what, 57 or something on the curve. So, yeah, I think like I think it's important to remember, especially as an investor trying to take a multi-year view uh, in our job. You know, I, I think one of the things that I really try to keep in mind is use Occam's razor and cut out the things that don't necessarily add explanatory power to the narrative. And I think you've laid it out great on your podcast where you say there's a red problem and there's a green problem. And to me, you know, I, I was a tutor uh, of, you know, the local uh, Rice area youths who were trying to up their SAT scores when I was at Rice. And there was, you know, this this kid that I, I tutored. And I remember every time I'd show up and he would ask his mom for a grilled cheese in a tone of voice that like made my skin crawl. Like it was like Will Ferrell, oh. like, mom, 
grilled cheese. And I'm like, you know, and, and, you know, we'd sit and I'd be chatting with them about like, what's going on. It's like, man, you know, algebra, like, you know, algebra, like teachers, the worst teacher sucks. And I was like, well, what's, what's the problem with the teacher? He's like, well, she hates lacrosse players. And I was like, maybe we can use a little Occam's razor here. I was like, what's your algebra average? Well, like 68, 69, you know, like, okay. And, um, that tone of voice, like the grilled cheese tone of voice, do you use that with the teacher? Like, well, no, but I mean, I mean, I sit in the back and I kind of let her know that her class is boring, you know, and I'm sitting, I'm like, so let's remove the lacrosse explanation. Cause I don't think it adds a lot. I think if we stick with <laughs> gruff 68 in her class, we, we're covering 99% of the explanation. Right. And I think when we talk to people and they say, you know, I talk to private equity or public equity management teams and they say, man, I guess if I, I guess if I had a scammy sales pitch, like XYZ solar or Tesla, you know, I'd be in a lot different position. And you know, it's, Hey, <laughs> we've got, we've got three things to unpack here. You can't find investors. You spent 10 years losing money and people are really mean to you about your green credentials. Which one of those three things could we drop and still explain pretty much 99% of what's going on here? And it's like, a, like, okay, you know, like, well, you know, we're, we're providing a, an essential service. Like, well, gas demand in the U.S. has gone up by mid-single digits. I mean, nobody can say that gas demand isn't growing like a weed, right? I mean, you add exports on top of uh, coal to gas switching. Like, gas demand over the last 15 years has grown meaningfully. Just production has grown more. You know, yeah. it's not like the market, it's not like these mean green guys have shut down all the power plants you sell to. It's not like the restaurant in, in Cal, uh, you know, in right next to Cal Berkeley campus that shut off its, its gas stove. Like that didn't hit your bottom line, right? What, what hit the bottom line was, you know, again, going back to this, we had our kind of moment uh, shortly before COVID as an investment shop where we said, okay. Before 2014, we grew, you know, 5 million, 4 million barrels in five years. Post 2014, post OPEC warning shot, we've grown 20% faster because that's when you kind of go into the pilot, you know, you go into the pilot's cockpit and you just see the sticks just bouncing and the pilots, right. you know, you kind of say like, so you're drilling regardless of your break even because you have debt service as your main focus like okay like this is why investors get frustrated right it's the business was incorrectly capitalized do they really care like do the people who left would you have been able to keep them by putting you know a, a solar panel on your compressor stations in the field no you wouldn't have been able to keep them like that you would have been able to keep them by just hitting them in the face with with excess cash and unfortunately there was none to be had because of the way you capitalized your business, which anticipated, you know, $100 oil indefinitely. And, you know, $100 oil means two turns. That goes to 60 now. I even think it was worse. I don't know that it was $100 oil in the model. It was more Aubrey's going to pay me X. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. You know I mean, right? Yeah. Was, well, yeah, you know, I mean, for a was, public, yeah. I mean, yeah. for a public perspective, you're right. For a public perspective, it was much more like, what does 100 imply? I think, you know, on the private equity perspective, it was totally like, uh, let's just run 50 feet in front of the gold speculators and then sell them this dirt and then we'll right. run 50 feet further. And there was definitely a, a real estate, you know, and even today, right? When I talk to uh, endowments or institutional capital, one of the conversations that we have is just this idea of, 
was the huge investment boom, which almost every endowment got very involved in, you know, I'll, I'll say uh, upstream private equity. It's like, how many of those were cash flow? How many of those were E&P businesses versus how many of those were uh, extremely well-informed like real estate plays, right? Like you guys know the industry extremely well. So you can go pick out a plot of land and say, this would make a great strip mall with a Chick-fil-A anchor. You know, you, you have that skill, but how many of those businesses were truly like, even if no one buys us, we're going to make a ton of money just cash flowing this asset out. Uh, right. I don't think that happened as much. At least that's my, you know, uh, semi-informed <laughs> impression. No, no, I think saying the same thing a slightly different way with some hindsight looking at it is one of the things we did as private equity is you wanted to incentivize the management team to sell, Yeah. right? And so we created these waterfalls with these back ends that as we, the private equity firm, do better and better, you get a bigger and bigger share. And so to some degree, you almost didn't care above a 2x, you know, what you were given the management team because you're like, man, I got my 2x. And what it did on the positive is if you're in the big splits with the management team, you know, in the waterfalls and it's call it 50-50, they realize that $10 million wealth, $5 million of that's their money. So yeah. they get incented to sell. So that's a good thing because you had people wanting to flip. The bad thing in hindsight is what we were all doing. You called it real estate. I'm going to say it was venture capital. I mean, it literally was early stage type assets. When you go to the Powder River Basin and decide, let's do the first slick water frack. I mean, that is venture capital. I mean, yeah. when your analogy is states away. I mean, that's <laughs> just, right? And so. So what happened is the reason venture capital works so well is you own Microsoft and you can make a hundred times your money. It makes up for whatever the rest of the fund was. When we have a venture capital portfolio, and I don't care what any of the guys said, we all had it. It was us, NCAP, NGP. We, at that point, we were all doing lease and drills, early stage stuff. When you have a venture capital portfolio, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're going to be capped out at 2x or 3x because the management team's going to be incented to sell, you don't have that 10 to 15 to 20x that carries the rest of the fund. Yeah. So it just it came down to just bad portfolio construction. Yeah, no, look, I think that's right. I think an, another thing that markets again and again show you that when a market is figuring something out for the first time, that is the most likely to contribute to a to a bubble environment, right? Throw more money at a problem that doesn't seem solvable. Now, obviously, I mean, you, you probably recall even more clearly than, than I do, but you know, in 2001, I was about to graduate high school and you, know, you can see the Twin Towers from my high school. And that drove an idea of, man, how much are we relying on other countries uh, for our energy? And people, it, it sounds kind of hokey and it sounds kind of like drill, baby, drill, or like, you know, like a Sarah Palin kind of uh, soundbite now, but there was across the spectrum, hey, if we can throw money and throw technology at the problem domestically and eliminate 80% of our energy imports, let's do it. Yeah. And, and, and the nuances that you're talking about now, which are totally fair and accurate, are the natural retrospective nuances, right? Like I kind of joke with my wife and again, like I'm not a, a green hater. I, I try to think about like if green, like oil and gas 10 years ago, green today, you know, 
by the time we are, uh, you know, kind of our kids are having kids, there will be big solar arrays that are getting disassembled. There will be better uses of land than just occupying land with a low energy density, three hour a day power plant, you know, and uh, trying to just kind of visualize like this willingness to throw unlimited dollars at a problem that seems unfixable always ends. And it ended with oil and gas. And with green, there will be a time where people are like, half the state of Iowa is now reflective. Was that really like the straightest line from point A to point B? Uh, you know, (laughs) like there's 8,000 degree fires in this battery station, like in, you know, downtown, whatever, because they need swing power capacity. And instead of God forbid this natural gas plant running a few hours a day, they wanted to put this massive battery array right here in town. And when it ignites, it goes off to the tune of thousands of degrees. Like, was this our best and final answer? And I think the answer is probably going to be no. Well, and that's that's the thing that bugs me right now, and I wish I could do something about it, is, you know, you have extremes on both sides. We'll call it hardcore environmentalists, and you've got hardcore energy loud, energy crowd. Those two groups are never going to talk. But it seems like there's a fair amount in the middle that could have some of these rational discussions like, you know, Pick, pick a rational environmentalist just saying, hey, guys, I know we want to force the majors to reduce their emissions, but if they just sell it to private companies, it doesn't it, help. It anything. hasn't happened. It, it hadn't helped. And believe it or not, Exxon's a better steward than XYZ, you know? No, you're, t- you're totally right. And, you know, one of the things that I've gotten to do, which has been cool, uh, you know, since starting Recurrent, uh, really we're research guys. We love investing too, but at the end of the day, Hey, I'm good at picking Exxon versus Chevron. Okay. Stay in touch. And, uh, you know, you have to have some research. You have to explain how you think about the world. We put together a piece on electric vehicles back in 2017 saying, you know, anybody with a 2% market share can talk, uh, hypothetically about what their business looks like at 50% market share. But the reality is, you know, 2% to 40 and 50% involves a massive difference in how you run your business, how logistically focused you have to be. Uh, You have to make sure, you know, when Elon sold his first 100,000 Teslas, he didn't really need to know that Glencore is running a mine in, in the Congo that produces those minerals. Now he has to directly contract with Glencore to do Congolese mining to get Tesla what they need to make those batteries. You know what I'm saying? And so- There's a like as we walk through that, I randomly got invited by a very academic symposium during COVID a group called the Clean Air Task Force. And I, you know, when you walk into a room and you're like, oh, wait, I'm the bad guy. Like, I thought I was the (laughs) I thought I was the thoughtful nerd. Like my e-scooter, which I sometimes ride to work, um, was in the background. I was like, there's an e-scooter back there. You got to believe me. Um, but, but, you know, the reality was it ended up being really productive, even though typical kind of academia, everyone had to explain their very nuanced position for two hours before it could be discussed. Right. But, you know, basically what came out is you had professors that said, uh, professors that said the technology for electric vehicles is going to allow us to completely get rid of oil as a transport fuel. And my job as one of the kind of 20 different panelists was to say, So the mining industry is also getting divested based on ESG grounds. Uh, You have to increase some of these minerals by 10 or 20 fold in the next 20 years to hit those targets. 
And it takes about five to 10 years to go from Greenfield to uh, an operational mine. And that assumes that there's not a civil war or whatever in the country where you operate. And so as you know, the academics kind of said, oh, you know, what industry are you from? Like, are you from Exxon? And, you know, the guys from Toyota and Ford who were also on that panel kind of said like, hey, I'm Toyota. I led the charge on hybrids. When gasoline went to five in 2008, we had a model internally saying we have a five-year wait list and we're only at two to 3% hybrid penetration. We are going to sell 50% of the world's market share of hybrids. And he said, you know what? We got to 4%. We got all the early adopters, the Trader Joe's shoppers, and we've been at 4% since 2009. And it was, it was great perspective to hear somebody from a real company say like, We've now, you know, Ford chimed in, like, I've introduced 19 different electric Fiestas and Focuses, and guess what? We've discontinued all of them because you can't force someone to go from an F-150, and now we're introducing an electric F-150, so we're trying to address that, but the F-150 is going to take a whole lot of metals and, and minerals out of the ground because it's a huge battery. And so you start talking to, to people who are multidisciplinary and you talk to the guy who says, I'm a solar developer, you would need to give me an entire state of Iowa right of way to get to that academics forecast. You can't give me the entire state of Iowa. People want to grow food there. You know, I can't block out the sun on all the, and as I listen to all these other experts, you started kind of getting this idea, well, hey, we can, we don't have to make everything electric, but we can make, you know, renewable fuels. And then the guy chimes in and says, you know, my job is processing cow parts into renewable fuels. You would have to quintuple the cow population of the world and slaughter them at a certain cadence to get, which by the way, would deforest and depopulate all these other areas, which would make them that much more susceptible to global warming if you want that much renewable fuel. And before long, and by the way, they like to burp and they're going to be spewing that thing. <laughs> yeah, they've got their own emissions. And so the thing that I guess I'm an optimist at heart. And the thing that I do truly believe is, you know, you've got a family. I've got a family. My house is always falling apart. I've never been to your house. But, you know, it's like when my wife is like, hey, you know, one of the gutters is kind of hanging off. I'm like, I'm sorry, that didn't make the top 10 of priorities, you know, and, <laughs> and the, the reality of the capitalist system, which, you know, as much as people bag on it and it's selectively beaten up when something's a real problem, it jumps to the front of the line because real problems make real money and real money, uh, makes changes way quicker than anybody would have thought. Right. And I think that ultimately, as I talked to these experts, it was like, so we're not going to get rid of the last 40 or 50% of our of our fossil fuels, we're just going to have to carbon capture them because you're already eliminated by land usage, by mining, by, you know, cow populations. You're limited on all these other niche 1% technologies that a lot of, you know, folks just extrapolate to a 50% market share. And what I've always said about the United States is day to day, we actually don't do that very well. You know, it's the United States, it's, it's kind of, we got to go solve this problem or that problem, the gutter problem, not in the top 10. We don't do that very well. I will never vote for a Houston mayor for higher office because I blow out a tire once, <laughs> twice a year because there are potholes everywhere. We don't do day to day very well. But when the shit hits the fan, we do that really well. Go ask the Nazis. I mean, seriously, 
when when stuff goes down, the United States actually circles up the wagons better than anyone. So I, I kind of have a tendency to agree with you that when there's true evidence that this is a material problem, ingenuity, technology, capitalism will solve it. That's right. And look, I mean, you know, you can imagine my, my younger brother uh, is in Brooklyn and uh, his ex-girlfriend, I'm confident he'll never make it this far into the podcast, but uh, you know, his ex, his ex-girlfriend, you <laughs> Don't know, worry, my mom, will. Yeah. my mom listens to this. So we've got that going. For uh, you know, she comes to Thanksgiving. She's, you know, nice she's from you know she's from the south but she's kind of gone to brooklyn to make a statement to her family and it's like you know she's got the sleeve tattoo and and uh you know it, we're talking about this in, in a very kind of not angry i don't hate you you're letting me stay at your house so like thanks for having us in houston right. and i was like look you know most people have a mental model of how human beings behave whether or not they know it i think in investing you have to think a lot more about you know what hypothetically will happen but I kind of said, I was like, I live on the Gulf Coast and I'm not from the Gulf Coast. I don't have any weird kind of like emotional, uh, uh, you know, like they're going to destroy this coastline. I also don't have the weird um, emotional other direction of like my grandpappy did this. So like, I love this industry and I want it to survive forever. But just from a very rational perspective, I was like, you have to build me a model where my personal consumption decisions change weather patterns in a way that affects my family's safety in the next 50 years. Like I'm an I'm average Joe American. Show me a model where I'm changing my behavior and my kids are not getting hit by a tidal wave here in Houston. And she was like, well, that's a ridiculous. And I was like, but that's really how people think. Yeah. People start with the, how safe is my family? What are you telling me? You're telling me that Miami needs to build higher walls in the next 30 to 50 years. And if we were, if we were perfect from now on, it probably still wouldn't save Miami. It would probably save Miami a hundred years from now. And, and even that's based on a model with a certain amount of uncertainty. You have lost the average American decision maker in their household so long ago. And that's why these debates have to become emotional because if you're a politician, you're like, Hey, you know, Chuck, Think about the point oh 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 one percent improved livelihood of your great 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 grandkids if they choose to live in a hurricane zone, you know, right. two hundred years from now, and you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not I'm not buying one more one less bottle of water, you know, soda based on that, and it's like, well, in that case, this is the apocalypse. You're destroying the world, and if you don't change something about it today, you know, it, it is a religious, you know, again, the philosophy major in me. It is a religious argument, which is, did I scare you with the be a good person spiel? No, I'm still going to do whatever I was going to do before. Well, in that case, let me introduce you to the really scary kind of like afterlife punishment type stuff. You know, like w when you're in philosophy of religion at Rice and they kind of say, like, let's talk about the functional use of these arguments. You can see that in the green debate, right? It's like the chances of Brad Olson's, albeit large six person family changing consumption in a way that changes weather patterns has no logical appeal to me really e even if i believe in climate change you know which right. I, which i do but it is the it's the i can't do anything about it well if i didn't get you with the logic i'm going to hit you with the really aggressive emotional arguments and obviously you only have to be on the internet for about 15 seconds to hear all those <laughs> the thing that scares me about it is we actually can't have this discussion i mean just I mean, we've gotten to a point, and, and this is all of politics, where you literally can't say, 
hey, let's talk about it. Because one thing I have, uh, so you know who Mark Mills is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Mark and I sitting there having a drink, and uh, Mark throws out, you know what's interesting, Chuck? Last year, COVID, quarantine, we shut down the world, right? Yeah, fair enough, Mark. He goes, you think we burned less hydrocarbons? I said, well, of course we did. You know, we've shut down. Nobody's on the road. He goes, yeah, I did a little math. We burned 10% less hydrocarbons last year than we did the year before. I go, wow, that's pretty interesting. He goes, what happened to the CO2 parts per million in the atmosphere? I was like, well, Mark, it's a good question. I don't know. And he goes, kind of funny we don't hear about that because <laughs> if it had gone down 10%, don't you think we would have heard about it? Yeah. See, it's right. See, if we stop burning hydrocarbons, CO2 will go down and we won't have global warming. No, I think there's a lot of the politically loaded stuff, which, you know, frankly, you know, I think being a you know poli sci philosophy major, you know, I feel like I got a lot of that out of my system at Rice. And, you know, I even joke with with uh, my partner, Oliver, that he loves like the red meat political discussions. And, and he's I think sometimes disappointed that I'm just kind of like, OK, you know, like because <laughs> you're not changing anyone's opinion. Right. It is a sporting event at this point. It's a freaking echo chamber. It, it's a sporting event. And it's like. Hey man, I'm wearing my Tom Brady jersey and I just want to approach you in your, you know, uh like Buffalo Bills like Bruce Smith jersey Bruce Smith <laughs> right. jersey and just kind of have a rational debate about this. It's it's not that it's bad. You should always be trying to have that debate, but I think the the reality is, right? The most effective carbon reduction that the US has done in the last 20 or 30 years is replacing coal with gas in our power stack. But that didn't giving kudos to the gas industry is not, you know, that that's not uh that doesn't align with the other objectives that are trying to be accomplished by kind of the decarbonization and electrification movement. You know, it's and it's similar with Tesla, right? There was a a great study that I, I shared with some friends that a guy put together and, and he came to the same conclusion basically as we did a few years ago. So if ever if 10% of humanity wants a 300 mile range f-150 tesla x tesla s then 10 to 15 percent of the of human population will effectively monopolize all of our minerals for the next 30 or 40 years right we could say instead of 10 percent getting 100 percent, why doesn't everyone have a 10 percent electric battery car because the reality is I drive 6,000 miles a year. I, I go to my workplace. I go to HEB. I go to pick right. up the kids from school. The electric battery at 10% of the range, at a 30-mile range, 10% of the size of Tesla, would cover all my needs, would basically completely decarbonize me um, personally, and would leave 90% of the battery available for other people who want to use it. Right. Well, you're buying a petroleum car. You know, like that doesn't achieve the goal. Yeah. Like you're still buying a, a petroleum technology and you're like, man, like we could decarb 100% of the population or we could like virtue signal 10% of the population. And if those are the choices, sadly, it feels like people are more inspired or motivated by the let's let's virtue signal with 10%. Yeah, we don't get any sort of benefit for incrementalism. And I think where that comes from, and I've said this too many times on the uh, podcast, but I'll say it again, it's just when you get outside the extremes and you have a rabid environmentalist, but who's willing to chat with you, 
they reach out to me all the time. So I'm chatting with these folks and it's like, don't tell anyone we're talking. I'm like, fair enough. I won't do it, but I'm chatting with them. You know what it comes down to? They actually just don't trust us. So they actually think they are morally correct in saying the world's going to end and all this and not giving us the incrementalism because they're like, you lied about climate research. You know, we see what you guys have done polluting this and that. We just think you're, you know, you're after the almighty dollar on this. We don't trust you. And I'd love to be able to figure out something so that you and I could sit down with those folks and say, all right, let's be reasonable about this. You know, a pipeline leaks a lot less than trucking does. Right. You know, can we can we think through this one, you know? Um, well, the two things that I view, like, you know, I'm not, I, I sit on my phone with everybody, you know, I can compete with anybody in hours of screen time. And, you know, my wife and I are both those classic people like, man, we're on our phone too much. But the reality is today, you know, trust is built when you think you're going to have a recurring interaction with someone that's going to benefit you both. You know, obviously on some level, I jumped on the podcast because I was like, never met Chuck before. I'd love to be able to go to TPH or any things around town and say like, Hey, I know Chuck, like I'm going to see Dude, Chuck I from wouldn't now. do that, man. Yeah. yeah <laughs> man. Like, <laughs> Maybe right. Yeah. yeah. I was like, Whoa. But, but you know, the reality is if you are in a group where you say oil and gas guys meeting with me under the cover of darkness, you are very much the kind of like, you know, white settler and native American, just kind of like next time our crews meet, it's not going to be friendly and yeah. it's not going to be good. And yeah. so we can do it individually, but it's very hard because there's no anticipation that there's going to be a regular constructive dialogue. So it's a, hey, you know, oil and gas guys are kind of hurting. They've lost a lot of money in the last few years. They're, they're hitting a really conciliatory tone, but they will not be willing to rehab. You know, they will not be able to continue that dialogue when, when they're in the money again. Right now, renewables yeah. are in the money. Why would we, you know, I, I've made the joke in a lot of fundraising meetings that, energy right now is kind of the guy under a blanket and you know holding a sign and you know the renewable guy is in a suit and he says hey slick you know hey slick like 10 years ago that that was me and the renewable yeah. guy's like nice try you know and he keeps walking yeah. and we, I, ma I make the joke about back when uh back in the day we used to print up bumper stickers that says you know freeze a yankee it was just like we're on top of the world to, yeah totally i mean i remember hearing that for the first time at rice because it was my first time in in texas and i was like wait what's the concept and they, as they explained it i said well i think in order to better understand uh, you know i was thinking about this the other day there's that famous scene from mad men where like the really frustrated pent-up junior guy is like about to cry because he's so upset. He thinks that Don Draper's been dissing him or ignoring his work. And he's like, every day I look at you and I just think how miserable you must be. And Don Draper just looks at him and says, I don't think about you at all. Yeah. And like, I remember having a conversation with a guy from Oklahoma when I was at Rice and I was like, you're thinking to yourself that like, you know, the average kind of North, like Westchester, Long Island, uh, Connecticut, New Jersey person thinks at all about sending $300 a month to their gas bill. Like if you think it, it's a very kind of like, this is our industry. This is what we care about. The guy in New Jersey is just like, don't dig up my backyard. That's right. job one. Job two is you're telling me 300 goes to 350. Don't care. Right. You know? And so I think a lot of times it's not understanding the context. It's not believing that you have a reason to build a trust relationship and it's also, look, I mean, the reality is one of the reasons, you know, we joked about skilling, 
one of the reasons I'm not on Twitter is I, I fundamentally, uh, like I have to pitch my business all the time. I have to pitch our investment strategies. I have to present us in a way that is compelling in a, in a fairly bite-sized timeframe. The idea when I read, you know, on Twitter, everyone is trying to give you a worldview that is 200 characters and you kind of sit there and you're like, I get why that's efficient. You don't know what you're going to like and what you're not going to like. Like, right. hey, this guy's funny. This guy's not funny. This guy's funny. But when you live life like that, where you're trying to establish everything about you in the first three sentences, it does eliminate the nuance, right? It's yeah. like a, when I was on that, that Clean Air Task Force panel, hey, uh, you know, Brad, like uh, interesting comments on electric vehicles. Exactly how do you make money? Well, I invest, you know, prim we've got a few hundred million bucks of, of primarily fossil fuel energy investments. Okay. So yeah. everything you're saying is motivated. It's like, no, no, no you don't understand. If, if I saw different economics and a different opportunity set in renewables, we don't renewables. But I see an industry that's getting divested from leaving a huge swath of economic opportunity that nobody's grabbing for right now. Like, believe me, when there's no ideological, like, I saw the energy industry spend its way into foolish, like, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier at TPH. I just put out a report that was, hey, I don't know the answer to this. Does anyone know where we're going to get the chemical plants we need for the granite wash to triple in size and for the Marcellus to double in size? And everyone's like, you're an idiot. Why do you hate the oil and gas industry? And I said, hey, like, I'm just curious. Don't you want to know where your customers are even coming from? It might take six years to build a chemical plant. And as I talked to the chemical industry, they said, we never hear from any of those guys. Chesapeake doesn't call us. You know, Range doesn't call us. They just kind of assume we'll take their product. All of our investments are in the Middle East. We don't invest in the United States right now. And so just that realization that the way the markets work, there are a lot of inefficiencies caused by people not talking to each other or just assuming that the solution is going to appear when it's messier than that. When you sell a commodity and you don't have to market. I mean, say what you want. Amazon, they know where all their customers are. They know what all their customers want. Nike knows it and yeah. all that. So what is the uh, the the pitch for your business? What do you guys do? You know, a recurrent, uh, we, we started it close to, I guess, five years ago now. Mark Laskin, who's my partner, he and I were uh, the, the PMs running the long-only business at Boone Pickens BP Capital. We, um, you know, started recurrent about five years ago. And really the pitch, which, uh, you know, is going to probably underwhelm with its, with its lack of ambition, there were so many private equity funds. There were so many complicated hedge funds like, hey, in a world of oil price uncertainty, you want us to, you know, have a long short book where we're, you know, doing all these fancy things and charging you huge fees. Our pitch to clients was pretty simple. It is this market's way overcapitalized on the private side. Public is going to see capital leave first because you're not locked up. You're not in a seven-year fund. Public capital is leaving every day. And what's left is going to be a great long opportunity. Now, you know, using our uh, Nostradamus, uh, you know, compass, we were kind of like, man, 2020 is going to be the year when this thing all <laughs> comes together. And uh, but but the pitch was really you've done so many gadgets and gizmos. You know, if you're an endowment or, or a pension, you've done so many levered four holding portfolios. You've done so much ultra concentrated, you know, run by a geologist who knows every layer of the Permian, you know, like uh, in great detail. And we kind of said, like. The opportunity isn't from a 10% B 
better understanding or 10% worse understanding of the geology, the, the opportunity is that this is a massive industry whose underlying demand changes very little every year. And the amount of capital available to it is going to be reduced by 50%. If you are one of the few guys that we can kind of convince to throw, you know, put your money in at a time when everyone else is getting out, there's going to be choppiness. It is the changing of the old guard to the new guard. You know, the, the Fidelities and Wellingtons who were max long energy in 2016 are now, you know, fleeing the battlefield and that's going to be choppy. But if you stick around, there is going to be this, it's just us, you know, right. <laughs> it's just us kind of moment. And I wouldn't say it's just us, but you know, we're probably the only long only energy firm that's, that's grown in the last, you know, four or five years. And it, it's been, you know, as you can imagine, brutal during COVID. There are a lot of people, you know, frankly, looking you in the eyes and saying like, you know, I trusted you guys. And obviously I don't blame you for COVID, but like, I'm also an agent. I have to sell this to an end investor, my client, you know, and right. you guys are, have made a ton of sense on why EVs and, and renewables will draw capital away from oil and gas and leave great opportunities behind. But during COVID, like, how do I sell this? And you know, that that's been the real gut check stuff. And, you know, at the end of the day, the skilling thing, you know, I always kind of say, like, when, when you're getting those no's, or we can't do this right now, or we already shot our wad on oil and gas, and we just can't look at it. You know, we do also invest in mining and natural resources. But a lot of folks have just said, mining and natural resources are still kind of a hot button with the student body or what right. have you. And it, of course, I laugh and say, all of the copper, steel and aluminum that gets put into wind turbines and solar panels and electric vehicles is getting dug up by an increasingly small and undercapitalized group of miners who are spending most of their money on just ESG proofing a lot of their operations instead of new capacities. So, you know, I think the investment setup is probably is as good as it's ever been getting people to not give up on a sector that has hit every branch of the tree on the way down has obviously been tough, but Look, it's like every entrepreneur says, I feel kind of silly even saying it, but you know, it's like the three to four year J curve, like going through the the belly of the downturn and then kind of finding on the other side that people are like, I stuck with you. And it actually seems like things are, you know, we're running out of natural right. resources. It's not a simple transition. M metals and mining prices are through the roof. And yet there's no new CapEx in any of these industries. We're starting to get some of that intellectual kind of recognition of like, what you guys yeah. said made sense, but as you can imagine, COVID is just a total, uh, you know, I don't care what you said. I'm setting my hair on fire. My clients are mad. And, and, you know, getting through that was definitely a, you know, a gut check, but where we're at today, I mean, we feel pretty good about. So not specific names, but just in general, who's the investor base who who's receptive to that story might be the better way to Put it. You know, it's funny. A few weeks ago, we were in many, or maybe a couple months ago, we were in Minneapolis, and uh, you know, there was kind of a retired uh, executive who was. We're, we're at his like little office space on the lake, uh, on the shore of Lake Minnetonka, and he was like, "Man, you know, when are we going to get like the family office guys, you know, who are just looking out at Lake Minnetonka back in this sector?" And I was like we're on the banks of Lake Minnetonka. Like you're in the second, <laughs> like, like you are the guy, right? It is the, 
I've spent a career in business or I've, you know, spent like I've managed clients money for, for decades. And, you know, I know that these things come and go and that the end and the beginning of a cycle is always more violent and turbulent than anybody would have guessed. But it is that family office, the small endowment that says like, Hey, we're just managing a museum endowment. We're trying to do the right thing. We're not trying to satisfy a student body. Like that's been a little bit more, And then a lot of, you know, independent wealth management firms. I mean, I'd be lying if anybody who's listening, who's an entrepreneur, right? I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, there is a certain uh, fraternity that I don't even think I I had, I had no idea about. I I was a first time entrepreneur when, when we launched Recurrent and you go into the Morgan Stanley office or the Merrill Lynch office and it's a, Hey man, like. I'm an employee of Merrill Lynch. I've got a tea time. Tell me, give me the fact sheet for your fund and and get out of here. And when you talk to a guy who's like, I remember my first hundred million bucks when I built my wealth management practice and people were trusting me as the CIO to, to do better than I was doing at Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley. You guys are basically building that, you know, you're going through that crucible right now. And so I'd rather use you than Kane Anderson or Tortoise, because frankly, like when I call you guys, you're going to pick up the phone. Like when, when this fund goes down, like your net worth is getting hit because you guys are kind of all in, in a way that probably only an entrepreneur can, can really fully be. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Investors were almost kind of bipolar in their nature in that they said exactly that, you know, Hey, we want you guys you know, to be sole purpose. What you do every day is energy and the like. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, we don't want to have 872 managers. Hey, Blackstone, if we give you $5 billion, can we get energy exposure, (laughs) healthcare, and bonds, you know? And so it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was really, you know, best of times, worst of times, if you will. And I think ultimately what we're going to see in the money management business and what we've seen is almost the way of the cellular phone business, you're going to wind up with you know, call it five to 10, just big, huge, massive players that get every dollar. And all they do is get to consensus type returns and they should be index funds anyway. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have the whole host of smaller guys like you that are, that are focused on it and stuff. And so any, any alpha nature to, to your story, or are you just, are you just out selling beta? No, well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're all probably more beta than we want to admit. And that's like the intellectually Dude, honest. We're all, we're all just freaking beta. That, I mean, the right sitting on the sideline, we're all beta. If you had gotten like the UT plan two guy in here, he could have told you the alpha story. And I'll tell you that, you know, it's hard to, to parse out alpha over time. But I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a simple, simple pitch is, you know, energy, because it's so hated, everything trades at the same kind of crappy valuation. And some assets in the energy patch are 20, 30, 40 year assets. And then, you know, a pump truck might have a depreciable life of three years. And yet the multiples all kind of hang around this like mid single digit place. And so there's a lot more that goes into it. Individual company kind of understanding how sustainable returns are in an up cycle, as well as a down cycle go is a big part of what we do. But what we, you know, in a lot of ways, what we really try to do in our energy portfolio is, you know, you've got a Canadian oil sands company who's basically invested a ton on their front end. Like, you know, during the boom times, they built out this massive complex that really never needs to be changed. And now all they have to do is just kind of poke a new hole every few months and then steam the oil out of there. 
Now, what everyone says is, well, aren't the costs crazy high? Yeah, the upfront costs are, but they're sunk. So you're talking about a business that OPEX plus maintenance CapEx is like 10, it's definitely under 15 bucks USD. You talk about reinvesting in the drill bit plus OPEX in the Permian, it's higher than 15, yeah. uh, a lot higher than 15. Yeah. Now, the big stumbling block has always been, well, you're stuck up there in Canada and you've got to transport a lot of your stuff by rail. Right. Um, one of the things that's been kind of cool is, you know, with shale kind of, uh, you know, taking the brunt of COVID, a lot of your pipeline capacity just got freed up for companies who, frankly, did everything right except for transport. That was the one thing they couldn't get right. And so we look at a company like an oil sands company and say, my Permian producer is trading at seven times. My Canadian oil sands is trading at five times. And my Permian guy has a 10-year economic runway. My oil sands guy has, I would say, a less hype-prone 25- to 35-year reserve runway, which is yeah. truly not like a counting on different horizons and different step outs, but, but actually just sitting there in the, in the tar basically. So, you know, like that's an example of an asset where we think it's, it's long duration is underappreciated. And so if we both buy, you know, an asset for six times cash flow and one cash flows out for 10 years, the other cash flows out for 25 years, I'm just going to see a lot more of those spike you know, those upward spikes that we talked about earlier, that when they happen is where you end up getting a lot of your capital back. Yeah. You know, it was when I was back at Stevens way back in the day. So I guess I left Stevens in March of 01. What I found counterintuitive, if you would, is, and why I did not practice this at Kane Anderson's beyond me, but anyway, it was, you know, now that I'm the senior elder statesman, I can say it. But one of the things we found was, you know, beta so dominated energy, as uh -huh. one would expect, that actually in the beta run, the worst performers or the worst assets did better. Yeah. They had too much leverage, whatever the case may be. And actually where the good assets slash good management earned their keep was in the down market. Yeah. They, they weren't as they weren't as bad as as others. And so I mean, to your point, if you're long only mm -hmm. and you're selling, you're selling the uh, the beta story. The better the assets, the better the management teams keeps your clients in the downturn. Yeah, and look, I mean, you know, the alpha both strategies have have definitely compounded outperformance over time and during COVID. So there there has been alpha. I think the humility of investments punch you in the face every day. You know, to saying like I'm more of an alpha guy. You know, <laughs> it's like the oh, okay, one of these, but. uh Look, I mean, I think the reality is um, one of the reasons that I, I do like being a, a Twitter lurker, right, is um, emotions being high coincide with with inflection points. And, you know, I remember in in our natural resources portfolio, you know, Mark and I, Mark's my partner, and we were sitting in the backyard kind of 10 feet away, like, how contagious is this thing? It's, you know, March 23rd. And, and uh you know, Mark kind of looks at me and says, like, on, on the resources side, I think we got to buy like aluminum smelters. And I was like, oh, you know, in energy, because of the debt problem we talked about before, so many of these buy in the dip have been, just been widow makers, you know. Yeah. And meanwhile, metals and mining companies got told they were going out of business in 2015 and they've been paying down debt for five or six years. And so it's like, oh, dude, Boeing can't keep a plane in the air. They're never going to buy aluminum again. Right. No one's going to ever buy a nice new truck again. You know, wh what are people going to use aluminum for other than maybe, you know, 
automated wind farms as we all hide in our homes for the rest of you know, of time, you know, but then like you go online and people are just like, things will never be the same. We'll never see each other again. This might be the last time you like physically hug, you know, a family member and you start saying like, this is good because this is actually telling us that the emotional pendulum is reaching a crescendo, right? People are starting to go back to the, this is going to change my life, my family life, like the way I operate on a day-to-day basis. Like, and sure enough, the aluminum, you know, and steel kind of smelting companies that had only cells from the cell side, like even the cell side was like, you know, abandon hope all you who enter here. Right. And then you look back and now it's like, China can't run as hard because of uh, emission and smog problems. Like U.S. is the only place with a gas advantage versus the rest of the world. Wind farms and uh, plane orders are ramping up like never before. And you kind of say like the only thing you can really do as an active manager to earn your fees over time is be the guy who says like, you know, the the guy who steps back and says in 2008, people were talking about canned food and moving out to the wilderness and Lehman Brothers was going to take everything with it. Remember that that was the peak of the scarcity bubble. The we're running out of everything. There's not enough food in Asia. There's not enough oil around the world. That was a great time to short commodities. And, you know, the same way like this, we're never going to use anything again. We're never going to use commodities again. Ended up being, you know, even with the huge dip of COVID, the fact that both of our strategies have made money over the last few years is something, you know, we take a lot of pride in because, look, you know, people were talking about a permanent change to all of these industries. And it's been a change, but it's been more incremental than I think most people would have guessed, you know, a year or two ago. I mean, like I always told LPs with a straight face is whenever you feel like you want to give me the money, you really shouldn't. And whenever you feel like you shouldn't give me the money, you probably should because it, it's true. the best. Yeah, that's it's the best because, look, I mean, I, I had a moment where, you know, I think we all we all did like I, recurrent was still I would say, you know, we had gotten to above break even. But COVID was going to send us back to, you know, below break even. And you you have those moments where, you know, my wife and I are working across the dinner table. We got four young kids and I'm kind of looking at my wife like. How hard should I really fight to stay to to do a conference call if there's going to be kids screaming my wife's mad at me because she's also on a conference right. call like like you know and, and then it was one of those things where a bunch of clients who said you know you guys said a lot of stuff which i don't think is is discredited or disqualified by covid now's the time and i remember in a way it, it was actually a really great moment because as an entrepreneur we're all uh everybody is hit with imposter syndrome yeah. But as a, as an entrepreneur, you know, holding out a card that, that doesn't have somebody else's logo or somebody else's name, you know, there, there's that moment of like, would I, would I listen to me? And, yeah. you know, like to have a client kind of say like, I, you know, almost talking ourselves through it, like, Hey, we're going to wire you this. Like, we love what you're doing a year from now. We'll all laugh. We'll all laugh about, you know, how, yeah. how overdone this was. And you're like, wow, like. I didn't believe in, in me or us probably at that moment as much as they did. But those are the moments where, you know, my dad is a Midwestern dude, not a big, you know, was very uh, confused and kind of concerned by me saying, I'm going to start my own deal. Like, is it really that bad? You know, like getting a paycheck, living the American dream. Cause he was a total kind of bootstrappy or well, yeah, I'll say self-made guy, like put himself through college so that he could be rewarded with a stable career. Yeah. And so he's like, so you don't want the in state. dream of a pension. 
yeah, totally. And, you know, so he kind of said like, okay, well maybe new clients come in, but if they don't, and you know, I kind of joked with my dad cause I, you know, I love history. I was like, what did George Washington say to his troops at Valley Forge about attacking a bunch of hungover Germans on Christmas morning? Like <laughs> we're about to go bayonet some dudes on Christmas morning. I don't feel great about it either, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but the alternative is we're British subjects and probably prone to some nasty treason charges. So we've kind of got to put all the other stuff out of our head. And I remember saying to my dad, I was like, kind of feel like we're at that moment right now. We're like six months from now. I don't really know what things are going to look like after COVID, but we've got great clients. It sounds like clients are more interested rather than less. And, you know, 12 months later, you know, I kind of joked with my dad. It was, you know, one year, one year later. And I was like, I, I think things are, you know, way better than I would ever guess they, they would have been because I was in a pessimistic place like everybody was. And life ends up beating those kind of pessimistic, you know, negative expectations. Uh, and so it's been kind of a great firsthand experience, although my wife and I have both kind of gained gray hairs together as I've put us through the <laughs> right. entrepreneurial ringer. But, you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, I wouldn't change it because it, it, it does kind of scratch all those itches that you develop from being like, all right, I'm a good research guy, but would anyone listen to me if I didn't have the TPH card? Would anybody listen to me if I didn't have uh, the Boone Dan Pickens card? sitting in the meeting with me. Yeah, exactly. Boone's not sitting there. It's like, oh, last minute I did a speaking gig in Houston where, you know, I like Dan sent me the email on a Tuesday and it was like a Wednesday speaking gig. And he was like, hey, you've got great macro slides. I'm going to ask you to uh, go present to, you know, this real estate company and you know, there will be like some big, big Houston hitters there. And when I walked into that room, like I, you saw the CEO of the real estate, like this national real estate firm, like take out his Blackberry and probably like write four letter words to Pickering. Like you sent me some 28 year old scrub <laughs> from your team. And then it ended up going really great. And, you know, I had a, a really good relationship with those folks, but to your point, like Pickering totally Indiana Jones me where he was like, I've got the Pickering idol. And the Brad bag of sand. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. I, you know, sitting here at kind of 53 um, and looking back at all the stuff, th these are all just cliches. It, you know, one of, one of my favorite jokes is investment banking, just the art of stating the obvious with an air of discovery. But, <laughs> you know, at, yeah. at, the, at the expense of, of doing that is, one, you look back and you regret the things you didn't try. You never regret, man, I did that and I screwed up. You don't ever regret that. Yeah. And I can tell you this, there is nothing better on this planet than not having to answer to anyone except your wife, your kids, your partner, you know? Yeah. I mean, no, it, I, the, the freedom that comes with that and the mental health. I mean, I have figured out I like the toys. I don't need the toys. <laughs> I mean, the mental health aspect of being able to sit here and do whatever podcast I want, talk to whoever I want. If Colin gripes about it, I just put in my ear pods. You know, it's like, whatever, Colin. You know? and so, uh, it's totally true. I mean, look, you know, there was definitely a phase where, you know, my, my wife kind of looked at me and said, like, if we make it out of this thing alive, you you can go a few years without scratching any itches, okay? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like I I was pregnant with twins, and you said I want to be an entrepreneur, and I'll be able to help with bath time just as much as I would otherwise. I might even travel less, you know, and and uh, 
But, but like you said, it's, you never want to look back and say, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know what could have been, or man, I like, that was a nice stable deal. But I, I think, you know, it, you know, scratching that itch has, has been a lot of fun. And obviously it allows me to, you know, come on cool podcasts like this and talk about life and, and all the stuff we've covered. But, you know, I think, uh, discovering something new to your point, right. I, ha- I had that bonus at TPH where, you know, I went and bought like a used Porsche Cayman and which is like not even that cool, but you know, I, I got it. And I was like, don't get me wrong. Like darting around on 59 is fun, but I kind of looked at, at Bryn and this was as I, you know, was kind of winding up my time at TPH. I was like, I can't find enough of these that will last me more than like a month of endorphins to kind of want to just keep doing the big investment bank that pays well, you know, and I, and that sounds really like my dad would hear that. And he was just like, who did I, you know, like, so spoiled, such a spoiled mentality, which I get, but there's also a part of me that's like, like you said, I have missed very few bath times for the last four or five years. Like my knees can attest to that. And those are the things where, you know, maybe the final, I obviously I could tell stories all day, but the final story I'll offer is, you know, when things were really kind of negative and it was so early and nobody was taking meetings with us, you know, our fund had like 15 million bucks in it maybe. And, you know, I was talking to my, my daughter and, you know, she's really kind of a typical oldest child grasps really quickly. And, you know, I was like, Oh, you know, and she's like, what's stressing you out, daddy? I was like, work, you know, it's hard to find people to invest in the fund. And she was like, well, first of all, you just need to tell them not to worry. And I was like, okay. I was like, I want to hear some more kid advice. And I was like, well, honey, you know, if, if we, uh, if we ever get to a hundred million bucks in this fund, uh, I'm going to take you to Disney world. And she was like, that is so exciting. How much is in the fund today? And I said, 15. And she goes, that's not very close. (laughs) And, uh, you know, on one hand, it was a stressful time, but looking back, it's like, you know, my kids got an up, for, up uh, uh, an up close and personal view of that. And, you know, when I was on the TPH podcast, you know, one of my daughters kind of said, she was like, well, daddy, you're not on big TV yet, but you are on phone TV. <laughs> and I was like, you know, like my kids get to get to experience all the madness, which is which is cool. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great because at the end of the day. I think what you'll figure out, what you'll see from it is getting to watch them figure out what their passion is, is everything. I mean, you think when you have a kid that's born, oh, I want, you know, this child to go to Harvard or do whatever. No, who gives a crap (laughs) about that? Having them discover something they love and be passionate about it. And, you know, work really hard at it. And kudos to you. You've set the environment for your kids to go chase that in life. They saw daddy do it. And that that's that's really cool. I hope so. My, my kids see me sit around on the couch and eat bonbons. So. <laughs> Brad Olson, thanks for coming on, dude. Yeah, thanks for this having me, a, Chuck. This, this was, was great. Yeah, it's about time we finally met. This yeah. Is, this has been really cool. <laughs>